Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Yeah, we are live. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Secular Jihadist for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizvi, and with me, as always, is Armin Navabi, the author of Why There Is No God, and the founder of Atheist Republic. And um, so, you know, one of the things that we've had on this podcast is, you know, we've had uh, people like Majid Nawaz, who was uh, previously, he'd gone through a radicalization process and then he came out of it. He was de-radicalized. We also recently had Tanya Joya, who was the ex-wife of a senior ISIS commander, who's still actually in, in Syria and Iraq uh, fighting with ISIS. And she spoke about um, how she was radicalized uh, when she was young. And, and we've always found this, this topic very, very interesting. Um, as ex-Muslims ourselves, um, and as people who have been very familiar with the processes of radicalization, we've been around it a lot. Um, this is something that we're really interested in. So recently, when I was in Amsterdam, I met a young man. Um, his name is uh, Leon Kortevek. Uh, he's our guest today. And uh, what he talked to me about is that, uh, you know, how he, when he was younger, after the death of um, Theo van Gogh, and Theo van Gogh in uh, Amsterdam in 2004. So this is a man who had worked with Ayan Hirsi Ali and he produced a short film called Submission, which was criticizing the oppression of women in Islam. And he was murdered in broad daylight at, by, by a Muslim fundamentalist. And it was after this process that Leon actually became radicalized. You know, he, he joined, he became a, a sort of far right nationalist. He joined a group of skinheads and neo-Nazis. Um, and over the next seven years, uh, he, you know, he, he says that he went through a process of de-radicalization, and now he's at a very different place uh, in his life politically and just overall in terms of his views. And he just had a tremendous amount of introspection into the process of radicalization and how and de-radicalization as well. And um, you know, we booked him on the show because I, I think his story is amazing. He is here with us. Hi, Leon. How are you? Hi everyone. Uh, I'm I'm fine. I'm a little nervous, but I'm okay. And uh, I would be very much. Uh, um, I'm very much looking forward to sharing my story with you because it may uh, give people important information about how radicalization works and how you can get out of it again. So uh, yes, I'm I'm really excited. Yeah, and, and so so Leon has said to me several times that he's nervous about this, and this is a very natural thing. So people kind of, um, it's a good thing to have an understanding of how difficult it is to come out. And when you had a past like this, uh, you know, how to talk about it and really, in a way, come out of the closet. So I think this is one of the first times that Leon will be talking about really, this. Really, so. this is your, is this your coming out of the closet kind of thing? No, not really. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, like uh, I've I've um, been open to to many people personally, um, and uh, lately somewhat more publicly. I've given several interviews, but those were all private except for one, 
which was on uh, uh, a Dutch uh, or I see a Be- Belgian critical thinking podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first time I'm doing this story in English to a global audience. So uh, that's that's <laughs> a whole yeah. lot different. And because you know English is not my native language, it's also a bit. Uh, a bit more difficult to express myself. Um, so yeah. yes, this, this in in a lot of ways this is bigger than I've done it before. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I, I think so far the the English seems to be perfectly fine as far as it sounds more authentic when you talk about white nationalism for, with an European accent. It seems like we're going. To, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like we're. we're I guess it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. This is uh, the thing is, this is one of the, I think nowadays with the discourse so polarized and everything is so tribal, I think it's, uh, it's, I really like, and I I know Armin agrees with me on this, is we really like highlighting voices where people, you know, had the introspection, right? And the self reflection to be able to change their minds uh, based on, you know, new evidence and new insights that they gained over, over time. So I think that this is a, it's, it's a very, very important thing to talk about. So, um, so let's dive in. So Leon, you, you live in the Netherlands, right? Yes. Um, how, so in 2004, if, if you, if you're okay, you seem like a very young guy. So I assume you don't have a lot of problems <laughs> about talking about your age, but um, yeah. what happened in 2004 after Theo van Gogh's murder? Where were you before that? Uh, how did that change you? How old were you? So what else was going on? I, I'd like to give a, a little broader background about the Netherlands. So um, it's a, a small country, but uh, densely populated with se- 17 million people in Western Europe. Our language is Dutch, which is also spoken in the north of Belgium. And uh, it's closely related to English and Dutch, uh, German, I mean. And we're relatively advanced uh, in, in the world. Um, so uh, our, our country used to be a uh, holy Christian with a very small Jewish minority. But uh, in the past 100 years, we've uh, largely secularized. And now more than half of the people are uh, secular, atheist, agnostic, or somethingist, as some like to call themselves. So not particularly religious. Yes, and uh, you know there there are disputes about how many Muslims there are in our society, but it's about five percent. And uh, a study that is uh, currently being developed um, says that uh, uh, around one third of uh, people who used to be Muslims in the Netherlands are now ex-Muslims or much more liberal Muslims. So they don't pray, don't fast. A lot of, there are, are, are thousands of ex-Muslims in the Netherlands, but a lot of them don't dare to come out of the closet. So that's for your perspective. Um, so I myself didn't know much about Islam uh, at all uh, when I was about, say, 10 years old. Um, I come from a relatively uh, liberal Christian home uh very very progressive i could say um it was uh, uh the christian community as they call it it's uh founded by rudolf steiner and uh, under other anthroposophists it's a it's a kind of uh new age christian movement it's it's quite small but it uh it, it ha- is international um and they they believe in a lot of woo and pseudo science um but as, as for the theology um yeah there are there are there are several currents within it um 
So there are fundamentalists, but uh, my parents were were not fundamentalists at all. We were quite quite progressive. Um, but um, so what happened in in uh, in uh, September 11th, uh, 2001? I couldn't really understand it. Um, I didn't know what terrorism was. I didn't know what Islam was. Um, I was shocked by it, but I didn't know how to respond. Uh, it was only later oh. when I. Yes. Where, where were you at this time? Were you in school? Were, um, well, I, how old I just, were you? Um, well, I was almost 11 um, when that happened. And uh, I, I just came out of school and my parents were watching the news and I saw the, the Twin Towers burning and uh, I asked what was going on and they said terrorism and I didn't know what terrorism meant. So, um, yeah, I had to learn it all very fast. Um, but I had no idea about the the politics, the socio-economic issues, the, the the religious issues. No idea. I, I um, but it, it it did change. Uh, well, how how it did change public discourse, and over over the next few years, um, there was a lot of uh, discussion about Islam. I also um, went to a new school where there was one Muslim girl. Um, and uh, there was a bit more attention given to Islam. Um, and so we had a populist politician here, uh, Pim Fortuyn. And he was one of those who uh, was was criticizing Islam, but from a quite, well, let's say right-wing populist nationalist perspective. And um, at the time, there was a lot of political correctness um, and people didn't want to bring this topic up be because they were afraid that Muslims would be discriminated against. And partially that's correct, but um, we shouldn't make it a taboo subject. Um, so uh, in, in May of 2002, he was shot dead by a, f a far leftist. And that uh, brought another shock in our own country because it was the first time in, well, I think 400 years or something that a, a political murder happened in our, uh, in our country. Um, but for me at that time, it was still not very, very clear how to respond to this because it was a far left. It, it was not a Muslim. And, you know, he might be, might have been someone who wasn't very sane in his mind. Um, so I, I still didn't know how to respond to that. Um, but um, discussions were going on about um, how to uh, tackle these um, conflicts and clashes with different cultures within our country. And we didn't yet have a way to um, address all these issues uh, yet. Uh, at least I didn't. So, But I uh, did know that there were some problems with multiculturalism and I started to to read about this in the newspapers so it was in 2004 uh, 2 November 2004 when Theo van Gogh was murdered for producing this film uh, submission and it, it's it's very short film with uh, a voiceover by Ayan Hirshi Ali where a woman is talking about uh, sexual abuse and uh, a lot of other forms of abuse within Islam. 
and how this is justified and by just, the Quran. Just a, uh, sorry, a quick interruption. Yes. Ayan Hirsi Ali, at the time, who you know, members of our audience are very familiar with. Uh, so was she the, uh, a Dutch MP at the time, or was this? Yeah, I th- I think so, yes. Yeah, I, I think so, yes. So she... she um, she already uh, was critical. She was already participating in a debate after 9-11. Um, she eventually lost her faith, I think, shortly before producing this film. And so she was then one of the, one of the most vocal critics of Islam as, as an apostate, as an ex-Muslim. And for a lot of people, including uh, non-Muslims, said you, you, she couldn't say these things because you're like... Not a Muslim anymore? Losing your own nests, like you're, yeah. you're, you're bringing, bringing shame upon your own community, your own culture. So this, this film was very controversial, uh, especially within the Muslim community, but also people who, uh, wanted to defend the Muslim community without actually knowing what was going on, perhaps. So the murder took place in, in broad daylight in Amsterdam by, uh, Mohammed Bouyeri. He was one of, a. uh, terrorist uh, group, a, a sleeper terrorist group who were already plotting for a long time to to uh, take out several targets they thought were important to eliminate because they were critical of Islam. And this is the Hofstra, I think, is that what they're yeah. called? The Hofstra group? Ho- Hofstad group, yes. So this is a code name for a terrorist group in, in The Hague. Um, so Are they still around? No, I don't, don't think so. They've all been uh, either arrested or um, uh, set free if, if, if they were found uh, not guilty. I'm not, not sure about the current status. but um, so, um, so how did that impact you? Go back to your own journey. Yes. So it came as a shock that uh, this would happen. It was much clearer now, at least for me, who was the culprit and, and what, what ideology was to blame. Uh, because uh, unlike uh, the murder of Pim Fortuyn uh, uh, two years before that, this was a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And he was clearly saying that if you, if you, if you uh, commit blasphemy, then you deserve death. And if the state doesn't do it, then I will take the, the matter in my own hands. And for me, that was a signal, okay, We've got clashing cultures here, and for it, it's, it's becoming apparent that we can't live together in the way we're doing now. But I didn't have a solution yet. I didn't didn't know how to deal with this problem yet. I was getting more vocal about this. I sometimes discuss this with my parents and and my my siblings. We were very open about about discussing societal and world problems, especially at dinner. Uh, at home, uh, and so I sometimes did some statements that 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 shocked them. Like, "Wow, where did you hear this shit? <laughs> like, you're <laughs> you're you're painting all foreigners as if as if they're all bad." And uh, I was like, "No, no, not that." But I see I see a lot of problems, and and maybe we shouldn't be looking away from those problems anymore. The, the, so, so it's kind of like, this is um, against the stereotype. This is the way it was in my family too. Like when the kids are saying something, you think the parents would say, and the kids would be like, what the fuck? These old people are so <laughs> backwards, right? Uh, 
right so so like you would think like the old grandpa would be like oh these foreigners they all should like something like that but, <laughs> yeah. but your parents were like what the fuck were you getting these ideas from right it's the other way yes. around yeah. okay yes my, my parents were very progressive and very inclusive so they right. didn't know uh, this is not what they taught me so <laughs> where right. did you get this from so um doesn't that say something about the rediscovery of these ideas so i guess it's like the grandpas and the grandchildren are like it shows that these ideas are coming back right like it's in the middle that is these uh that are saying what the fuck right, <laughs> right? yeah okay yes. okay good. um so um perhaps uh interesting to note that uh, my dad was was raised in a secular family uh, they did uh, they were taught about christianity because their parents thought it was important to know about our cultural heritage Mm. But not, uh, they were not taught to believe in God or anything. Um, but my mother comes from a very strict Protestant uh, Christian uh, family. And uh, it was very strict and very religious. Um, but um, in her teens, she, she um, uh, rebelled, I could say. And uh, she, she eventually left her parents' home because uh, they couldn't deal with... Uh, her criticism, her her blasphemy, and the fact that she had a boyfriend—you know—that's that's not done. <laughs> so um, yeah, she she actually broke away from her from her family for for a few years, and um, it's only later when when they got together that they decided to to seek some spiritual uh, meaning, and so they went like religion shopping, and they eventually came came to this kind of spiritual Christianity, new agey stuff. So, um, but they um, were not very strict about it. So they were very progressive and they rejected all the fundamentalist readings of, uh, of, the, of the church doctrines. So anyway, there's, a, uh, there's an important other setting that I should tell you about. And this mainly the, uh, the situation at my school. In in uh, primary school, I was one of one of the most intelligent kids of the class. Like uh, I had the highest scores in uh, intelligence tests, so that gave me um, misleading feeling of being superior to everyone. Um, and I, I knew, of course, that I could be wrong, but it would be very unlikely if I really thought about something. If I really thought something through, I I assumed that I would get the right answer, and this this false sense of false sense of security perhaps intellectual security uh has has also made me vulnerable to ideas that seem compelling but are not true so uh another thing uh, i i was had uh, uh great difficulty with making friends in school and i had moved from uh, from one primary school to another when i was bullied and I was afraid of that happening again. Now, fortunately, when I arrived at the secondary school, which was a grammar school, um, the first two years I had great friends and that was all fine. But at the end of the second year, I found out one by one that all my, my, uh, my friends to a different school. There was one guy who would stay in my school, but for some reason we had grown apart at the, at the last months of the second year. So I knew that, um, at the, at the start of the next year, I would be all alone. To make matters worse, uh, the classes were combined because a lot of people left the school that year. So they made 
four parallel classes into three. And so the entire structure of that of that class was changed. So I would be with different classmates, lots of people I didn't know. And uh, in that new and chaotic environment, I had to make new friends. So and then did didn't go too well. So you um, felt isolated. You mean? Yes, I felt isolated. Alone. I was yeah. I was I was very very afraid to be bullied again in school. So. Um, this is this is getting so close uh, to to my experience because I also before I became extremist in religion I felt very isolated as well because after my uh, suicide attempt I was I missed school for a whole year yeah and when I went back to school I was with a different set of set of students and yeah. all my friends were in different classes so I felt so isolation uh, so isolated that. Uh, it really helped with becoming very religiously uh, religious, but it's interesting that you say that. Go on. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and um, so there's another point that I I, I could make here. Um, like my story may not be representative for many other people who radicalize, but there are a lot of commonalities when you're in an isolated position and uh, you're in need of friends because humans are social creatures we we need to hang around other people to feel comfortable and to feel um well to, to feel to feel cared about to feel loved perhaps um and when you're alone you 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 you're you may be desperate and you may want to look for friends anywhere and that's exactly what happened so um i went looking for for a group of friends i could uh, be supported by, could identify with perhaps. Um, and I couldn't find those at school, but I could find them with an, with an old, uh, friend from my neighborhood who was in a different school and, um, who had a, had a different upbringing. His parents weren't that controlling. They, they just let their uh, children do whatever they wanted. Basically, they didn't want to interfere with their lives uh, so much. My parents were much more controlling, much more uh, educative. They wanted to to guide us to to uh, right future. Um, so this neighborhood friend, um, I'll just call up Sean. Uh, it's uh, so he was in a different school, and there was a different environment. In my school, there were barely any foreigners. Uh, like it was a very white school. Like. More than ninety-five percent of the of the pupils were white, and um, so there was barely any any contact or conflict between cultures there. And we're talking so, about like the real original whites in Europe, not these fake <laughs> American whites, right? Yeah, I'm so kidding. it's okay. <laughs> white, um, not orange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but. Uh, Sean's school was very different. Uh, in his school, about a quarter, uh, according to his estimations, were, were foreigners or children of, of, of immigrants and with different schools and often different skin colors and different, with different cultures, different languages, perhaps. Perhaps also in the wake of this uh, brutal murder of Theo Thango, they started to radicalize. And say the, it starts, it's really like innocent jokes. Uh, um, but eventually, uh, it began to, to develop real neo-Nazi, uh, characteristics. They began to 
identify with Nazis and with white power things and such. And uh, some of them started to change their appearance. So they started to uh, shave their heads. Uh, some, some became skinheads. Some started to wear uh, black jackets with, uh, with a Dutch flag on the, on the shoulder. And some uh, started to wear uh, uh, black army boots. Uh, some some with with white uh, white laces to represent white power. So not all not all conformed to this behavior, but many of them did. And uh, um, how, how did your school authorities uh, react to that? Was it well at the time they didn't know. I was I was uh, ha- having a group of friends uh, outside school because those meetings took place somewhere else. Uh, no, the school authorities in- of the other school were these neo Nazi. Oh. I don't like, know. Would they go to school in this kind of appearance? Or? What did you say? Uh, I said, uh, would they go to school with all of these uh, sort of appearance shades, like, you know, the skinheads and the... Uh, yes. As in, um, okay. yeah, I, I, I was just wondering about that in terms of uh, how their authorities, their parents, the school, and if you knew anything about how they reacted when they saw this kind of thing happening. No, um, I I don't know what school policy. Yeah, because he was in the same school. Time. Yeah, he wasn't. Yeah. Well, sorry. Yeah, yeah. God. So, but I think they were allowed to to wear clothes like that. Anyway, we we started uh, holding these meetings, and I I didn't agree with them at all in the beginning. Uh, I just needed a group of friends to to hang around with, but they offered me answers to questions I was asking about multiculturalism and what what do we do with with uh, these extremists who want to to threaten our freedom of expression and threaten our freedom to 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 criticize religion or or Islam specifically what what do we do with 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 clashing civilizations basically and so they came with the radical solution all foreigners must leave the country if 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 all people here subscribe to dutch culture we would be fine that was that was basically the the idea and when um, they say foreigner are they talking about people that are not citizens or, or are they talking about race a lot of different things that this is this is one of the basic problems about the far right uh movement is that there's a lot of these things are not clearly defined. Right. Some think it's a problem that they have a different nationality, that we're born in a different country. Some folks on skin color. If, if, you, if you're not white enough, you don't belong here. Other people focus on language if you don't speak our Right. Or a language. We're gonna get once once we fin- once we go through your story, we're gonna go into different <laughs> views because we, we we understand there's gonna difference between neo Nazis and Nazis in history and white supremacists and white nationalists. And yes. there, there are some of times these people are the same, but a lot of times they're not. And we're gonna go yes. over what the differences are and mm-hmm. which one you were before, right? But okay, but go on. But they do, even though they're very different from each other, they do hang around with each other a lot, right? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So everyone had their own ideas, often conflicting ideas, but uh, the ideas overlapped. And so that made it possible for us to group. So f- for a lot of people, it was just fun. Uh, it was just hanging around and saying, uh, saying uh, politically incorrect jokes and Bring the the Hitler greeting. Uh, I don't know what you Nazi call it. Salute. In the Nazi salute. Uh, yeah, the Nazi salute. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
I did that as well. It was just part of the the group uh, behavior. Like you, you're trying to be tough, to be cool uh, to to yeah, to your friends. And uh, I can't even imagine you doing that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially it's, it's, now knowing you now, it's uh yeah. <laughs> yeah, he looks like, it's like you're. I mean, that, like, this is a nice, innocent guy. Like, and you know, such a. I, I just I can't even picture you like doing that. No, it's, <laughs> it's kind of similar to it's uh, the you know that I I mean. Just to sort of draw a parallel, that's interesting is that when when Majid Nawaz talks about it, he talks about the same kind of thing when he was in school, and in his case, he was being victimized by skinheads and neo Nazis, and he was being bullied by mm-hmm. them, and he joined an Islamic fundamentalist group. Yeah, yes, um, you they know, each uh, other. But go, yeah, yeah, it's actually it's it's really fascinating. But yeah. go ahead. Yes. So. Um, I struggled with my identity from early on. Am I a Nazi? No, I I never called myself a Nazi, uh, and, and I, or neo-Nazi, right. no, nothing of the sort. I right. I didn't have an have a firm identity in the beginning, and also, just to be clear, not, yes. when the reason why people say neo-Nazi is because if you say Nazi, you're actually referring to the. The National Socialist Party of Germany, which you know doesn't exist anymore, right? Yes. So that's why we yes. have. That's why people use the term neo-Nazi, right? Uh, but yes. you are neither of those things, right? You are. No, you, I yeah. didn't in- identify as such, but uh, some of my friends at the time did. Okay. Um, I, I think most of them would, uh, but but it's it's because also because there's a stigma around the world. Like I was raised to to believe basically that the nazis were bad and uh and that that the holocaust was bad and the world war ii was bad and hitler was bad so i i knew there was something wrong about it but still i was interested in their views and maybe there's something to it um but i still didn't want to 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 identify as a nazi and that that's why you contacted us and asked us to change the title for today (laughs) yeah from from a recovering neo-nazi to a recovering white nationalist right yes i'm 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 a bit uncomfortable with uh being labeled as such because i never was a nazi but i should say that in practice i uh, I agreed with a lot of their ideas, especially in the beginning. Mm. I was very much afraid of the white race basically uh, dying out, that that uh, we were going to be dominated by non-white people, uh, that immigration would uh, would flood us and uh, that, that there would be race mixing, especially in the beginning. I had, I had very irrational fears about this. And if, if I also didn't didn't really want to identify as a racist because you know that word has a negative connotation to it. You know it it's 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 something bad. So you try to find a, a word that you which you can identify with. Um, um, once we get into this a little so, bit more, I'm going to try to see if I could be a devil's advocate and be the uh, be, be the Nazi in the in this conversation. Sure. <laughs> but, but go on. But, like, uh, sorry. So the one, one thing you said that kind of caught my attention is you said that you had um, sort of irrational fears about you know uh, whites being drowned out or flooded out by the foreigners. Uh, mm-hmm. What what did you? Uh, why in retrospect do you think that they're irrational fears? Well, we're going to think that I think. We were going to get to eventually what changed his mind, but should we get into what... Okay, let's save that for later. Yeah, yeah. 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 
So, so how far did you go down this down this rabbit hole? Like, how far did you? Uh, so, uh, did you at any point identify your identify as a white nationalist? Like, is that or what did you did you even use a label or you just like I just agree with these ideas? I don't know what the fuck I am, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was after a while that that uh, Sean suggested to me. Uh, like Leon, you're not really a Nazi, are you? You you're probably more like a nationalist. And I was like, what what is a nationalist? Well, I'll tell you that that's someone who loves his country and uh, wants to to wants the best for his country. And I was like, I don't know if I love my country. Do I love my country? <laughs> and what what does that mean? <laughs> oh, uh, I hadn't actually thought of that. This, this may sound really weird, but. I was just against some foreign influence. I was against them. I was not not necessarily for us. Wow, it's not really weird. But at that time, at the time, I wasn't thinking uh, in in that way yet. Right. Um, but I, w- I was starting to consider it. So, what is nationalism? What is nationalism? So, I I read 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 some things about it. Wait, when your friend was saying you're not really a Nazi, was that was he saying that as a positive thing or a negative thing? Like you're not um, a real Nazi, like as a as a negative, like you're. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily negative because okay. he wanted he wanted to include me, but he also wanted me to be comfortable with, with where me. I was, and uh, he knew I wasn't agreeing with a lot of what the others were saying. Right. Okay. So, so you read about nationalism. What happens then? Uh, well, I, st- I started to to agree with a lot of with a lot of points they had, like uh, the idea that you should have one people or one folk uh, for for one country, and so it's not about um, uh, doming dominating other peoples or or races, perhaps. Um, although I I really don't like the word race, um, but uh, it's about Every people basically having their own country and their own culture, and they shouldn't interfere. They they can have contact with each other, can trade and such. Whenever in need, they may help each other, but they shouldn't mix. There should no be no migration or as minimal as possible. That that's the basic idea I started to develop. Right. So this is the main difference between white supremacists and white nationalists, right? So yes. white nationalists they defend themselves by saying, "Look, we're not white supremacists. We're not saying white people are superior." We're just saying we want our own country. They sh- countries, uh, they should have their own countries. We can even be cooperate, be friends with each other, trade with each other. But you stay there, we stay here, right? Yes. That's and they say and they say we're we're not even racist, but because we're not saying we're better, we're just mm-hmm. saying that every to each each it's better. It, they argue for ethnostates. Basically, they're saying that if 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 people hang out with people like themselves, they, it's it just works better. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah, but I mean that's. Uh, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying. Oh, oh no, no, I know. <laughs> the reason that that's a, a bit of a thin line, though, is because the 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 mindset that drives white nationalism or white segregation for everything else is sort of a mindset of whites that, you know, we're better. We don't want to mix with these people. So sure, they're fine. Outwardly, we can say, yeah, you know, hey, we're all the same. We don't. A lot of them actually very much, a lot of them actually very much say that that's not what we're saying. Well, they say that, right? But but, but, no, but let's let's not try to assume what they think. Because like (laughs) one thing, one thing I noticed is that a lot of them would loved 
Wakanda, <laughs> right? A lot of them love like the Black, Black Panther movie. They were like, yes, that's what we want. They, that's what we want for black people. And we want the Wakanda for white pe people, right? That's what they're saying. Like, look, they, they're saying a lot of the arguments. They didn't actually like the hero of the movie at, at, at the end because he changed his mind. But but the villain and like not, not the villain also well, the, was, the like, hero of the movie in the beginning wanted no immigration. He wanted to keep Wakanda like he was just, just for like, them, just for their people. Like they say, like yes, exactly. That's what we want, right? Uh, say we will support that for. So again, you know, Ali, you might. Uh, I I try to be. I just I can't. I try to just whenever people say this is what we believe in, I just try to take them at their at the word. And you know, unless oh, you, no, no, I I do think that they genuinely believe it. I'm just saying from a third person point of view, when I see that and I see that somebody wants to segregate from somebody else, um, whether it's Muslims, whether it's black people, whether it's white people, it doesn't matter what race it is. Usually, there's this element that okay, well, I, I, we think that we are a little bit better, and we don't want these yes. others. Well, us. well, so I think that that's. Here's how. Here's what they say against that. They say, like, look, we think um, Japanese people are superior to white people, okay? And by superior, they, they look at IQs and shit like that, right? And we think, and when we go to Japan as immigrants, we will never be Japanese. We will never become Japanese citizens. We will never be accepted as Japanese. Only Jap only the Japanese people will always be Japanese. And they look at Japan as like a role model, right? Like, look, this is an ethno state. It's working so perfectly. And they will never accept white people as Japanese in this country. We will always be immigrants here, right? And this is, this is how it should be. And we, 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 we even admit that they're superior to us, right? So they, this is the arguments that they use uh, to make their points. Yeah, I, I, I just think from a third person point of view, it's a, it's a little. I, I look at it differently. But Leon, what do you what do you think about this white supremacy, white nationalism? Well, they're closely related. I think, um, like in my mind, I always had a struggle between what I thought emotionally and what I thought rationally. Um, I knew rationally, I think that it wouldn't make sense to argue that we were superior, but Emotionally, I did feel that way, but it was, I didn't want to admit that, uh, of myself. So, so, so um, you would, you wouldn't outwardly say it. I, I think that that's kind of what I'm, mm, that's your what point. I'm getting yeah. at. Go ahead. Yes. So what changed your mind? Uh, well, no, let's, let's go on with the story. I think that he's, uh, I think that's so, part of the yes, story I think there's no? more to tell about, okay, about this, this club and its activities, especially, okay. Okay. um, so the club was called, uh, and I kid you not, it was called Against Black Society. ABS. <laughs> <laughs> ABS. Yeah. Yes. Oh, um, is that an English name? Yes, it was, it was, it was in English initially, which was really contradictory. Yeah. Because, like, you know, aren't they against foreign? Or us, you should do it in Dutch at least. But, uh, <laughs> yes, it was, it was really amateuristic, everything. Right. Um, but yeah, that was what it was called. And, you know, it was an informal organization. We had a list of members. I was number 26. Uh, I didn't join unless one of my former uh, uh, classmates who, who left the school uh, also joined. He was number 25. So, and we grew after that to about 100, I think. Um, but it wasn't like a very close membership or, or something, but, uh, yeah, it could have, would it could have grown out to become a, a real organization. Yeah. Um, 
but there was no no structure to it only that sean was the leader and everyone else was kind of following him um and because i was his childhood friend i thought that i had a lot of influence on him and i could perhaps steer it in a bit uh less radical direction um but you know I, I was influenced by them as well. So it, it went both ways. Uh, they also radicalized me before I tried to de-radicalize them a bit. Um, so there were several meetings. Um, initially, there was a lot of... Uh, um, like there were two, two genres of music that we listened to a lot. And one was uh, what they call... Uh, rock against communism, but it's basically far right nationalist and sometimes explicitly neo Nazi uh, rock. And those were Dutch uh, bands or uh, German bands. And their influence, their music uh, and, and their lyrics influenced me a lot. And they, they really made me a nationalist to, to think about a lot of concepts and um and b- music inspires you music can control you and if you start singing along you feel like you're part of a group and uh you feel like this ideology actually has some content to it and actually is worth following yeah um, I, I think actually yes. that's super super powerful i agree because i'm a huge uh, musician myself and i also grew up yes. on like really heavy rock stuff and mm-hmm. um I, I think that one of the reasons religion is so successful is because, I mean, if you look at um, with the Christian religion, all the hymns and the gospel choirs and the Psalms, and and then with Islam, you have the the poetry and the, it's called tilawat, the uh, the way that the Quran is recited musically. But the the music call. sucks in in Islam. No, their poetry maybe, but their music is fucking. I completely awful. disagree. I, I remember like <laughs> Faisal and I used to listen to. Um, these ISIS, like the Noha in, the, in Muharram, like all of that, like the chanting music, the Nohas and the Marcia and the, uh, the, the, the battle songs that ISIS has. Some of those are like the way they're harmonized. They're, they're actually very nice to listen to. Are you about to join words. ISIS, Ali? Yeah, yeah, take that as a thing. <laughs> right. I love ISIS music. <laughs> all right, go on. Go ahead. So, um... Uh, the other form of uh, other uh, musical genre that we listened a lot to was called hardcore. Now, in Anglo-Saxon countries, that means something else. It's, it's kind of hard rock, but uh, in, the, in the Netherlands, hardcore means electronical, uh, fast-beating music with a lot of um, often neo-Nazi or racist uh, white power quotes in it. And uh, I think another term for it in, in, uh, in English is rave. So rave, hardcore, um, really fast yeah, electronic yeah. music. Yeah, rave. Um, yeah, very European. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's partly invented here. So, <laughs> so um, those those drove us, and those were kind of the background theme of uh, what we were doing. Um, a, a lot of uh, people in, initially were just playing along just for fun, but. Um, uh, Sean and other important uh, members wanted to make it the more serious movement, and they wanted to throw all the the party party goers out and to to uh, make real proper. Uh, well, let's 
let's, let's say far right people of them, far right activists of them. So some people were, were sort of banned from the group and uh, the, the ones who were like ideologically convinced, they, they stayed. And um, after a while, we also adopted a logo and um, a Dutch name. It was uh, called Nationale Eenheid or uh, National Unity. And later was uh, called uh, Nieuwe Nationale Eenheid or New National Unity. And that is what the sta- na- uh, name stayed for uh, from the rest of the existence. I don't think the group exists anymore, but uh, it, it, has, it has lingered on for quite some time. Um, and there were also uh, emerging uh, s- symbols and... Um, uh, so we were using different flags. So there were different currents within, uh, our group. One was for like, uh, um, uh, like a, a new Nazi empire, like the fourth Reich. And, uh, they, they have that like, like white and, and red color, uh, red, red flag. And they, they used a lot of, uh, um, swastikas and such in their, um, <laughs> In their, in their symbolisms. There were other people who were more reserved. They were like state nationalists and they were just concerned with the Netherlands and keeping all foreigners out. Just, just and I was, clear, how, yes, so yes. between between this white supremacy and white nationalism, where does um, Nazism fit in and where does neo-Nazism fit in? Just to be clear. Um, well, uh, I, I would call neo-Nazism a subset of white nationalism right not um, not, not so white supremacy then not new na- and white nationalism neo nazism well i, I w- <laughs> so i would call um neo nazism a subset of white supremacism and white oh. supremacism is a subset of white nationalism like that <laughs> wait no so, mm, actually yeah that makes a lot of sense to me wait really because uh, because a lot of white supremacists might um a lot of white supremacists might not even be nationalists. No? You know what I mean? So how I, could it be a subset? Yeah, but... Uh, and, also, so, and, and people that argue that uh, Nazis were more uh, white nationalists and white supremacists point to the fact that Nazis killed more white people than any other race. Uh, it was more about Germany and keeping Germany clean than, you know... I don't know if I'm, I'm not saying they're, they're they have a point or not. I'm just saying that's what they're saying. So they're saying Nazism and neo Nazism was more about white nationalism than white supremacy. I so, don't, so you're saying that it's a uh, but uh, so what you're saying, Armin, is that white supremacy is beyond just nation. It's more about the race. It's like everybody right. white. But on on the other hand, like that's why it's I guess that's the difference between nationalism and white nationalism. If you think of all of white people being a nation, right? Right. Rather than, uh, we're, we're yeah, but white nations. nationalism is beyond nationalism. White nationalism thinks that the best way to um, to save your country is by making it for one specific race, right? Yeah. But I'm not saying there's not overlap. Obviously, there's a shitload of overlap. People that belong to all of these groups, right? But I'm just saying that there there is also differences between them, right? And I and my and it seems like a lot of people are arguing that b- both Nazis. The original Nazis and the neo Nazis um, were more about white nationalism than white supremacy. And I don't know. But then, if you read, I mean, they were specifically talking about not just all white people, they were talking about like the 
German people, you know, the German white people. Yeah. Uh, the German, yes. Yeah. We like yeah, they were, so Yeah, go, sorry. I, I don't think they, they saw all white people as a as a single nation. They were talking about the German nation or Germanic nation. Exactly, yeah. There's a slight difference between those. Because they they killed a lot of uh, Slavic peoples, especially the Poles, um, and um, I think the argument you brought up earlier about not killing so many black people is basically because they didn't control a lot of countries where they're <laughs> right. where black people are living. They yeah, maybe they, maybe if they, they had lost time, all they these colonies <laughs> after the First World War, so right. it's basically. They couldn't get their hands on any black people. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, I think it's pretty likely it would have happened. Right. Um, it's basically the, the, the territory they controlled was uh, most of Europe. But, and most of Europe at the time had. But even when it came people. to killing people because of their race, um, like, for example, they got their hands on a lot of Jews, right? Yes. Um, it was more more uh, for the purpose of not not having them mixed with your own race than than exterminating your race i think later on in the nazi regime they got obsessed with exterminating them because they thought that they're going to die soon so like but originally it was more about like let's just keep our race clean from the, these you know these people do you know what i mean yes um, so it wasn't what yeah, go ahead. Sorry. What what I've read about uh, uh, Holocaust, and I, I will get back to that. How about how I thought about Holocaust? For that. It was a kind of Holocaust denier, but not 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 really. Uh, I, I thought maybe maybe it was just two million Jews. So what the fuck did I know? But you know, when you when you talk with other with, with neo Nazis, a lot of them tend to say it didn't happen or it wasn't that big of a deal or um but anyway uh, what i know as a historian because i studied history later is that um it's it's true what you say it in the beginning it is which is trying to isolate the jews to prevent uh, race mixing or to prevent them from stating some weird conspiracy or whatever and most of them they just wanted to to get the jews out of the country um perhaps to Palestine or perhaps to somewhere else, uh, a plan they uh, also had. Uh, so they were pro-Israel. They, they wanted a nation for the Jews outside yeah, of Germany. Actually, <laughs> actually they, 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 there were a lot of, lot of uh, people arguing for this. It is this um, the Jewish question, as, as it was called, the Judenfrage, uh, is, is actually very old. It has been in existence since the middle of the nine, 19th century. Hmm. And one of, the, one of the solutions to the Jewish question was to simply... Uh, um, Give them their own country. Emigrate or deport them by force yeah. uh, to, to Israel slash Palestine. So um, just, just, you guys, you heard it here, okay? So not, there were Nazis that were in favor of Israel. As this yes. <laughs> yes. This is, by the way, this is still a question that is that is still um, bringing up a lot of conflicts between neo-Nazis. Some neo-Nazis are very anti-Semitic and uh, anti-Zionist, and some of them are pro-Israel. They uh, they actually think uh, Israel is an ally against the Muslims. Uh, right, so and, and some of them point <laughs> a lot of them point to Israel as a model because they like, like look Israel is an ethno state, right? Uh, yeah. And so there, that's uh, after Japan. That's actually their second favorite example to point to. 
Yeah, I, I also think it's like when it comes to uh, Israel, there there are a lot of and, and Jews, uh, there are a lot of sort of Christian evangelical fundamentalists who are very anti-Semitic, are pro-Israel because they're anti-Semitic. So, for instance, you know they they want in the according to their scripture that Jesus will only come, the second coming will only happen if all of the Jews return to the promised land. So they yes. want all the Jews to return to the promised land. They want Israel to happen so Jesus can come back. But of course, when Jesus comes back, anybody who doesn't convert and accept him as a savior, like all the Jews, they're going to be killed. So the Jews are just pawns <laughs> in a way th- that, are, that they want to use in a way to bring uh, Jesus back, which is a, mm. which is very, very anti-Semitic, but it's also yes. very, very pro-Israel. And I, I, I was <laughs> but, but at the same time, again, there's a, there's a group of people here that are not anti-Semitic. And again, I'm not defending them. I'm just t- telling you what they are. They're just saying a country for the Jews a country for white people, a country for black people, a country for Japanese people. And I don't agree with that, but I'm just making sure that we... Yeah, the, the segregationist idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. So, anyway, so, Leon, go ahead. Another, yeah. another plan the, the Nazis had during the 1930s was to deport all the Jews to Madagascar. They thought that was a good plan. Um, yeah, But right. uh, they, they, they couldn't control Madagascar. Um, I think it was uh, British at the time. Or was it? No, it was French at the time, I think. Um, but uh, they were unable to control it, and uh, this 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 plan was dismissed later. It was only when in in the beginning of uh, the I think Opera- Operation Barbarossa, so the the invasion of of the Soviet Union, that they decided they could no longer postpone the final solution to the Jewish question, and uh, they started to. Uh, try and kill the Jews en masse and it was only uh, it seems to be uh, a desperate attempt to to solve this issue that they've been thinking about for a long time um, but yeah, initially it wasn't it wasn't the the primary uh, solution that was favored right so so um, uh, so your group you were talking about how your group uh, saw the Holocaust and yes how you felt about it right. yes so um so uh, I was getting information from Sean and others, like maybe it didn't happen like that, and the 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 figures don't add up, and uh, th- there must have been some um, cover up um, that that uh, it it weren't that many Jews. Uh, they don't they they can't find all the bodies back, uh, and there were no gas chambers or not that many or all kinds of conspiracy theories uh, were going on and, and I was fed all kinds of misinformation about this question. Now, at the time in school, um, it eventually had come out that I was part of this against black society thing and my uh, my classmate didn't take it uh, very, very well. Uh, I, I was bullied, so I, I was even more reclusive at school. Um, it was that, and because of uh, another thing uh, that I was, I was, I fell in love for the first time with a girl, and I didn't know how to handle that, and it went all wrong, and it was, uh, uh, people in the class didn't like me. Hey, that's, something, <laughs> that's something even all of us non-white people go through, you know. Yes. <laughs> so it didn't help with my social integration into this new class, and it. So they didn't like you because you were like uh, white, and because you were part of this anti-black group, and because yes. of this an incident that you had with a girl. Yes. Right. Okay. So uh, that that that's, uh, 
really prevented me from making new friendships in my class. So, um, well, people came up to me like, why do you, why do you hate all foreigners? And what do you think about the Holocaust? And they were asking me questions, critical questions, which is very good. Okay. And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe there weren't six million Jews. Maybe there was just two or something. The, the evidence. I never understood there. that argument. Is like as if killing two million Jews is not like a horrific thing in history. Like it's a like, hey, we only killed two million Jews. Like, oh, oh, like, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> like, like once you hit about four million, now now it's an atrocity. Yeah, what's the threshold? <laughs> uh, yes, like it's two million really Jews. Strange. Even like, if it was just two million Jews, isn't that already like? I don't understand the argument here. Yeah, I know. But uh, but anyway, yeah. so you, I think, yeah, I think they're, that that neo Nazis are trying to ease their conscience. They they secretly know it happened, but they're trying right. to to push it away or not take responsibility for it. Um, but anyway, but I, mean, I, I said this, all the other people that got killed too, because there was like a lot of gypsies and homosexuals. Yes. and yeah, okay. There were gypsies, homosexuals, uh, small uh, a lot of uh, Spanish Republicans who were driven uh, out of Spain by uh, Franco. Right, right. Um, so there were there were uh, resistance fighters. There there were a lot of political prisoners who also died in the Holocaust. Yeah, we need of, to make a gypsy uh, memorial Soviet for the like nobody remembers the gypsy killings. But go on. <laughs> Yes, so uh, it was it was a very broad thing, but anyway, um, so I I said this once to my classmates, like maybe there were just two million Jews, um, and I don't know how or, or or how this could happen. Maybe they did tell it to my teacher because we, I think it was later that day, or perhaps very soon after that, that we were in in our uh, civics uh, class. And our teacher said, you know, it's it would be ridiculous to claim that that the Holocaust took just two million Jews. It were six million Jews. I like, oh, I I felt really busted. Like, who told her this? Uh, <laughs> but I, but you know, I still thought like she knows what she's talking about. She is the teacher. If there were six million Jews, I shouldn't be talking about two million Jews without having any knowledge about this. So I, I felt felt really busted and. Um, uh, another another important thing about civics class was that we discussed the concept of a nation. What is a nation? What is nationalism? And um, we were talking like, are f are foreigners part of the nation or or aren't they? I I thought that my my concept of ethnic nationalism was that uh, foreigners were not part of the nation. But she, I asked her the question, can foreigners immigrants can they become part of the nation and she says yes if they're properly uh, integrated in society if they accept uh, the culture and adopt the language and obey the law yes foreigners and immigrants can be part of the nation and that single comment changed my perspective gradually but it was very important for me because then i moved away from um seeing skin color for example as a very important um part of national identity and from that moment on i began uh, focusing more on on language that if you learn a language accept our culture obey the law fine you're part of our nation and i accept you so 
I, you might you just might... one comment like that uh, to change you. Like, well, that was an make... important one, but there were several more. But that was uh, a trigger to start the whole thing. Like that was a spark. Yes, I think uh, I think that's that that moved me away from white nationalism. I was still a nationalist, but not necessarily concerned about skin color. Um, but instead, I radicalized in a very different way. So yeah. I began to focus on language, like the Dutch language. What is that? What makes it unique? What this this is this, this is the thing we use daily in our communication. This is how we understand each other. Um, this is what makes us us. And so I began seeing nations as language communities. Everyone who speaks the same language belongs to the same nation. Um, and in Europe, historically, this has been one of the most important factors. Like most countries have their own language, one dominant language. Um, and and our uh, borders are actually drawn often, but not not always, uh, uh, not very correctly in many places. But they're 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 kind of drawn along language borders in Europe, at least. Yeah. So that well, makes I mean, sense. Europe is a, it's it's I mean it's it's nation states, right? I mean that, that's one of the yeah. big differences between European countries and the U.S. What one question I have to ask you, I guess, yes. before we move on, is that when uh, you said that a lot of this. Uh, a lot of this stuff started for you after the death of Theo van Gogh. And yeah. Theo van Gogh was um, actually, there was a, when he was stabbed in broad daylight by the, by the Muslim fundamentalists, there was a note that was stabbed to his body yes. that had a list of other people that he was going to target, right? This killer. And one of the names was Ayan Hershey Ali. Yes. Right? Now, Ayan Hershey Ali uh, is black. She's Somalian. Yeah, she came mm-hmm. from Somalia. She was an immigrant. She's a foreigner, um, and she was obviously an, an integral part of, you know, what Theo Van Gogh was trying to do. So, how did you look at her after this incident as as a black woman who was a foreigner, but also spoke the language when you were concerned well, I'm, about? I'm very glad that you bring this up because I struggled with this a lot at the time. <laughs> this this is a very good point. Um, I have to say that at the time I didn't understand her criticism of Islam. And and it's 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 really stupid that I didn't because she was a very uh, a person who did a very admirable job of advocating for the rights of uh women and and other minorities within the Muslim minority um and doing an admirable job of uh, criticism of Islam. And at the time I didn't recognize it. I didn't really listen to her words. It, 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 it's ridiculous, but I saw her as a black person, despite lots of new pap- newspapers uh, talking about her criticism of Islam. I didn't really recognize it. No, but she was um, also an ally of Theo Van Gogh. I mean, there were yes, she was, and I was stupid to not recognize that. I didn't. I didn't realize it. Um, so there was shortly after this in. Uh, 2006 there was a controversy about her citizenship because she lied to uh, get uh, a residence permit and uh, she lied because she was going to uh, Germany to uh, get an arranged marriage and she wanted to escape from that arranged marriage yeah she's escaping persecution and a lot of yes yeah yes so and she lied about her name and about several of her uh, uh, background and upbringing and education to get into the Netherlands. Um, 
And now in 2006, there was an, uh, a right-wing uh, immigration minister who was very tough on immigrants. You know, uh, if you want to be part of this country, you have to really choose for it and uh, you have to leave your, your, your other culture behind. You have to respect our laws, our culture, our language, everything. Um, and that appealed to me. Her name was Rita Verdonk, by the way. She was a, our minister of immigration and integration. And um, Ayan Hirsi Ali was actually member of the same liberal party. They were allies. They were actually friends. But uh, uh, Rita Verdonk wanted to become the leader of the party. It was an internal leadership uh, contest. And she lost to... Um, uh, Mark Rutte, who is now our uh, prime minister. Um, and it seems that after that, their relations have uh, disintegrated, shall, shall I say. So they were no longer friends anymore because Ayan failed to support her candidacy. And then uh, later on, Ayan Ishali did an interview on public television where she said... Uh, to the entire nation, basically, I lied when I came into the Netherlands, and it was because of this this reason. Now, Verdonk couldn't just let that go. If you're tough on immigration, you can't say, "Well, oh, she's a member of my party. Uh, I'm going to shield her," because everyone would say she is a hypocrite. She can't do that. So um, she said, "Okay, that means we have to revoke Ayan Hirsi Ali's citizenship." Is that and even possible to do? You can't do that, can what? you? Is that even possible what? to do in a country to revoke a citizenship? Yes. If, uh, oh, yeah. If, it if is possible. She argued it was possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were disagreements about that. Basically, I think she was right. If, I think be, because um, she, uh, because Ayan immigrated under false uh, pretexts. I mean, if your life is in danger, I don't blame her, right? But. No, I don't blame her either. Right. And a lot of uh, leftists, the political left was arguing that, okay, in these circumstances, we should give her amnesty. Like, you know, we understand the situation. But right-wing politicians said, well, if we have to uh, exempt her from the law, then we have to exempt a lot of other people from the law. And like, so, yes, so this is so part of the left the people as well. The people on the left over there at the time who were supporting her and saying that she should remain a citizen, whereas the people on yes. the right were saying she shouldn't. That's interesting yeah, because a lot of that yes. changed on here in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Or well, because I, I guess I guess some leftists are still true to the or, or to their values that they're supposed to be supporting, right? It's, yeah, it's not died well, everywhere, right? Well, yeah. it wasn't I mean, uh, to be care to be fair. I'm, I'm not saying all leftists are like this. Okay, hashtag not all. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that, that, I've always said that should be the name of this podcast. Hashtag not all. Right. <laughs> Just assume that at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. Right. Okay, go ahead. There, there were a lot of leftists, uh, which we today we might call the regressive left, who didn't like her comments on uh, Islam at all. But they did think that she deserved the right to live in the Netherlands to be a Dutch citizen. So uh, it was not very uh, black and white, uh, right, left, but this is the general mood. Like in general, the 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 leftists were supporting her, and and the right wingers were opposing her, and said she should be uh, uh, have have her citizenship uh, revoked. So eventually, after a lot of controversy, um, uh, Ayan did get uh, her citizenship, 
but she decided to move to the United States anyway because the the climate against her was so hostile after all these years that she didn't want to be in the Netherlands anymore. She got constant security and everything, multiple death threats all the time. Or even attempts. Uh, there was so, an attempt on her life as well. So yes, yeah. So uh, yeah, but at the time I I didn't I didn't understand this at all, and I I I just followed the line of the immigration minister for Donk, who said you you can't you can't do this and. Basically, I I have to admit that it was my bias because she was black, and I thought you can't you, you can't be part of the country. But if 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 you lie by by when when you're when you're seeking asylum, you know we we can't we can't accept lies. So because, and if we have make exception, we have to make exception for everyone. Right, and in my mind, I couldn't reconcile that. So, even do you think even when you went from being uh, from race to language, do you still do you still had an anti racist bias that you didn't admit to yourself? Like, do you think that was yes. still there? Right. Okay. Yes, that bias was still there, but I didn't want to admit it to myself. That's very well phrased. Yes. And then, um, did you move past language? Like, did you add? How had you know, like, or did you just stay there? Like, what happened after? So now you think, like, okay, as long as you learn our language, so you're—is there a word for that? Language, languagist, or I don't know. But <laughs> well, well, I think it's still—it's. I guess it's a nationalist in a sense that uh, you, you're still a nationalist. That hey, if you come to our country, learn our language, integrate into our culture, and then it doesn't matter what skin color you are, where you came from, as long as you're. Yes. Are you still a nationalist? Like, no, no. Okay, so <laughs> that's, that's where we're getting to. Yeah. Okay, like, yeah let's get to how did he get out of that? All of that. That seems like a huge. So, what happened was actually in a, uh, a different kind of radicalization. I was um, really big on on language. So, and eventually, I radicalized in that sense. So, for one thing, I wanted to um, unite all the people who were speaking Dutch in one state. So the northern part of Belgium, which is called Flanders, should be part of the Netherlands to form a greater Netherlands or a Dutch land, as we used to, uh, like to call it. And for that, we needed to break Belgium in two parts. <laughs> wow, that's very anti-nationalistic. Oh, the, the, the Flemish, <laughs> they, would have, yeah, they would have loved it. You went from being a nationalist to wanting to cut your country in half. <laughs> well, but, their country. It was not my country. But right, right, right. But take but north they, of their country. They, they, they drink wine at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, okay. The reason this is because when I went to uh, the Netherlands and I was talking, I was like, "So, what's the difference between the the Belgian people who speak Dutch and and one of the things that they told me is like, well, you know, they drink wine at lunch. I'm like, how's that bad? But they were speaking it like it's some kind of outrage. But so, anyway, I thought it was funny. <laughs> so you so, okay? So you wanted to. Um, yeah, but it's still anti-national, anti-nationalism, anti-dernation. Well, it is a different kind of nationalism. Right. Um, it is ethnic nationalism, and that means you f- well, focus on the people rather than the state. Well, like, it's not uh, ethnic, it's language-based. Right? Well, I, I consider language the most important ingredient of ethnicity. But, but I think he's, he's, uh, uh, he's not just <laughs> talking, about, he's talking <laughs> about language as a, as, a, as a glue, sort of, but he's also talking about yes. culture and integration and values, right? right overall, right. So. Yes. And so, I think, I think if for a lot of people that are, uh, do want to uh, focus on culture rather than race, language is such a good way for them to measure things because it takes work 
to learn, like culture, you could like, yeah, hey, I could just put some clothes on and I could just go to some parties, you know, <laughs> and now, yeah, I eat your food. Like, yeah, they, they're now I have your culture. But they want the barrier to be like, like you have to put the effort, right? So it's a, it's a perfect amount of, okay, so it's not, it's not race. So it's not like there's no, no open door for anybody because uh, if it's race, there's nothing you can do, right? To belong. There's nothing you can do to be welcome. And it's not as easy as just cultural stuff. Language is like a good, hard test that you have to pass, that you have to put some work and effort into to, to be welcomed. You know? That's so, what it is. I, I think it's a barometer. Because, you know, when you come to, when you see some of these uh, sort of uh, really f- uh, the right-wing uh, Americans, right? They say, well, you're in America and I learn English. And when they say learn English, what they're saying is integrate, become right. one of us, right? That, that's what they're, it's not just about the English. Right. right? It's also about... Um, you know, become one of us and leave what you left behind, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So I think it, I still think it's reasonable to expect immigrants to learn the native language. I think it's but reasonable for I, their own sake, not because of accepting them. I, I think it's good advice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, it helps them function in society and to, for them to communicate with us and us with them. Uh, it's, it's a reasonable demand, but I went, Way beyond that, I wanted everyone to speak perfect Dutch. Mm. Even the native Dutch people should speak pure Dutch. So no foreign words, no English words, no French oh, words, no I, Latin words. You know, this, this is in Iran also not using Arabic words in Persian yes. language. So we have a, po- a, a linguistic purist. Right, and right. so, and I was I was really annoying person at the time. So I was co- constantly correcting people. <laughs> oh no, you shouldn't use that word. It's not Dutch. Like. <laughs> Right. See, All the time. <laughs> if you meet if if you meet Iranian an Iranian that says "durud" instead of "salam," then you know yeah. that you're talking to that kind of person because they don't want to use <laughs> okay. Arabic words. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Go on. So I was really really annoying at the time, um, and I because I thought like language is the most important uh, thing that makes us us. So we should at least stick to ourselves. If we we use English all the time. Um, then we will no longer be a nation. We will no longer be Dutch and we will just fade into some gray mass that everyone has to conform to. I, I was amazed uh, that everybody there knows English. Like in, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, we do. Everybody knows English. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes. And I didn't want to, um, I, I still thought like English should be an international language. Like this is the language you use, uh, to talk to other people who are not native Dutch, but, um, we shouldn't mix the two languages. Like it was a very similar idea to these uh, 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 racial ideas I had earlier. Like it's it's fine for them to have their language and their race, but don't mix it with ours. Um, yeah. And we can we can use use English as an as an international language, but uh, don't don't adopt uh, English words into Dutch. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like this becomes a sort of uh, even if it's uh, it becomes a sort of uh, a, a rational level of bigotry because now you're saying, okay, well, I was wrong because nobody can change their race. That's just an accident of birth. That's <laughs> how you were born. But you can learn the language. You can integrate. Yeah. So that becomes a, a sort of an easier vehicle, a more sort of intellectually justifiable vehicle for bigotry than 
than you know just going by skin color. Yes. Well, I don't think yeah. it's bigotry anymore, even though it's wrong. I don't think it's still. No, no, no. Unless, I, I don't think it's you tough. have like a hidden, like you know how you like. Well, I was still, I was still biased, right? If yeah. that bias is still there, then it's bigotry. No, no, but, I, I'm not saying yeah. that it's bigotry for everybody. As as yeah. we all agree that you know we've all said that expecting people to learn the local language is not unreasonable. But no, no, I'm, it's unreasonable about the specific it is, people. It is I'm unreasonable not. if okay. So here's the thing: there's two different ways of asking people to learn the language. Language, right? Are you asking it for their sake, or are you asking them because you think they don't deserve to be accepted unless they learn it? Right? I think there's a difference there. I no, would. No, tell I, you, I get that, Armin. I, yeah. I'm, what, I, what I was saying. Was I know. I know I, you get it. I'm just clarifying. I know you. Uh, you get it. I'm just clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. What I was saying was, I'm, I'm not saying that it, in all of those cases, people who think this it's bigotry. I'm saying in this specific context. Right. That we're talking to. I mean, for somebody who used to be a white nationalist and then says, okay, well, okay, I'm not going to focus on the skin color anymore. I'm just going to focus on language and culture. Now, deep, deep down inside, he's still motivated by the bigotry, but this is an easier way for him to publicly present it in a way that's it's socially more acceptable. Well, right? to, to be, to be yes. fair, even, even internally, you might be one, if internally you have a problem with judging people by their race, then you're yeah. fighting against your own bigger. Maybe it's not even society, right? Maybe it's like, okay, this makes more sense to me because, you know, because. Yeah, that, yeah that's, yeah, that's yeah. definitely part of it. Yeah. You're right. So, okay. so it's, it's definitely transitional, but um, it, it can still provide right. cover. Okay. So we're seeing the slow progress out of the, out, out <laughs> of, like, we, we go to not even yeah. being a nationalist. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, this I'm, is absolutely I'm, fascinating, by the way, yeah. Leon. I mean, the kind of <laughs> the introspection and the reflection that you have into what you're saying is actually just right but i'm really curious to know how did you even get out of being a nationalist i want to i want to know how yeah so go on go on so um there were there were several factors um one i I became more educated (laughs) simply uh correcting all my views uh as i as i learned more in school and later at university university was very important i um learned in my first year of college that nationalism is basically uh, very much like religion, actually. And it's it's based on uh, two basic concepts, which is imagined communities and invented traditions. Now, oh, an imagined wow. community is where okay. you, where you uh, construct a certain group of people and say, these are one unit. They all belong to each other. They all think the same, do the same, and have the same destiny. (laughs) And and you ignore all the differences within that group. Um, And you you say they they belong to each other and, and other people who don't belong to the group should be shut out. Like, uh, um, so a nation is is an, an imagined community. A religious uh, community can also be an imagined community. For example, the Uma, which you know very well, yeah. the Uma is an imagined community um, because Muslims are not a single monolithic group. They're so different in between them. There are so many differences. They don't agree on anything. They have different languages, different countries, different traditions, different sets of beliefs, different sects. Um, different economic systems. They don't, don't agree on anything. And still, very, very 
many of, of those, uh, especially the, the fundamentalists, they think they should defend all Muslims. When one Muslim is attacked, uh, you are attacking us all. But even though there's no us there, they're, they're so different groups. So it's an it's imagined community. It's not really community, but people think it is. Now, the same is true for nations. So uh, people think that the Dutch are one community. Uh, they all they all have uh, the same destiny, the same origin, which is not true. It's 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 made up. It's a construct. Um, or white people, community. or black people, or Jewish. Yes, th- those are also imagined communities in a way, because you know, you, 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 part of the the problem is that you can't say which people belong to it and which don't. Like there's no universally agreed upon definition of what counts as white. Like. Um, uh, are Arab people white? They're certainly more white than South uh, sub- Sub-Sahara uh, Africans. Even Spanish so, people, I heard there's a debate whether they're white or not, right? Like yeah, some people are like, there are some people that don't even know if they should include Spanish people. Yes, well, I say there's there are all arbitrary categories. There's no such thing as as race, not not objectively speaking. Uh, and anyway. um, so, what there there is such a thing as race? What do you mean? Well, I mean, there, there are biological differences. That's true, but you right. can't say this. This group of people is all yeah. white. I mean, the example I give is like you can you can never tell exactly where red stops and pink begins, or where yes. purple stops or and blue begins. You can never put yes. this is where blue sto- is blue and not purple anymore. But just because yeah. you can't put you can't point to the line, that doesn't mean there's no such thing as color. There's no such thing as blue. That's, that's true. That's well, true. you have you have uh, ecotypes even in other species where you have uh, people you know uh, groups of the same species that evolved in different parts of the world who develop different biological characteristics so that's i mean even in uh, you know in actually when you look at it some time ago they had four categories they had caucasoids they had negroids they had aboriginoids and mongoloids and mongoloids were yes, far exactly. right. uh, the negroids were black people the caucasoids actually included not only white people but people like me and armin too uh, just yes. based on skull structure uh, because skin color, apart from skin color, we're, we're really not that much different from regular Caucasian people. And then you had Aboriginoids, which is a small group that is generally in the Southeast Asia or in Australia, around that area. So um, that's kind of how it was. It was less by skin color. It was really more by skull structure and other physical characteristics. So those yes. ecotypes do exist, but I think a lot of what they mean uh, when they discuss the, the anthropological aspect of race, uh, much of that is... Um, a lot of that doesn't necessarily have a biological basis, but there is a biological basis for ecotypes and race. Right. And yes. I mean, so when I was a white nationalist, I did consider uh, Iranians and Pakistanis to be white people. And that's oh, simply sure one of uh, I'm so flattered. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying, no, but I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of Iranian people that would be like, yes, thank you for recognizing that. Like, <laughs> I, 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 that's what I was I don't, I don't care. <laughs> like, this is not something to take pride in or to be. I know you don't care it, now. It's really irrelevant. Uh, I know. Honestly, <laughs> Leon, we're just having fun with it. We, yeah, do, yeah. we know you don't care. But. <laughs> Remember, yeah. remember, Iran means the land of the Aryans. Yeah, but go on. To yes. the, the first one was imagine community. What was the second one? The second is invented traditions. Invented traditions. traditions. Um, and that basically means you you uh, 
think up stories about how your nation came to be uh, an historical event at which your your country or your people was formed and uh, a lot of other traditions you you blow them up and you you make them out more than than they really were or such events may not ever even have taken place so there's kind of creation myths for yeah for, creation for myth. that was the word i was looking for your creation yes. myth right yeah yeah okay so um that doesn't necessarily have to involve the entire planet just a set of people right so um but um as we already talked a bit about biology, I learned more about the theory of evolution in in school. And uh, as I learned more about it, I understood it better. And I also became more and more atheistic as, as time went on. Um, when I was uh, 13 years old, I left the church and basically because uh, I there was, there was a certain ceremony uh, after which you are accepted as an, as an adult. Uh, it's a kind of like confirmation. Um, but after that, you can determine for yourself if you still want to go to church with your parents. And I was like, eh. <laughs> I wasn't very interested in, in, in Christianity. I didn't know anything about the, uh, the theology behind it or whatever. I was just not interested. It was not until I was about 16 when I first um learned more about the christian theology in school and when i first heard about the word atheist so that's someone who doesn't believe in god and i thought oh, well i don't believe in god so i guess i'm an atheist <laughs> and and it was later when we i also took uh, philosophy classes that i got more robust intellectual arguments against the existence of god and we frequently debated about uh, the existence of god in in philosophy class and uh, I also learned about theory of evolution and that basically uh, gave pretty good arguments that, that, the, that the, at least the biblical creation myths and other creation myths were not true. So, um, and as time went on, I, read, uh, I still read the newspaper daily. I saw that a lot of conflicts in the world were not just about uh, oppressed peoples fighting for their own state. Which, uh, which I, I declared sort of solidarity with the Kurds and with the, the Tibetans uh, and uh, other uh, oppressed people. Um, uh, but I also saw that there was a lot of religious violence and a lot of religious oppression and religious wars. And I began to see religion more and more as a problem. And uh, in philosophy class, we eventually discussed uh, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And um, when I got into college, the first year of college, I uh, actually read The God Delusion and that uh, structured a lot of uh, atheist arguments already had and expanded on them with a lot of uh, information about uh, evolutionary biology. And that, that was very important for me. We're now talking about 20, 2010. Yes. Um, and I, it also had an impact on the way I thought about nationalism. A lot of uh, religious religi arguments were about, well, maybe religion is not true, but it is useful. Mm. Um, but simultaneously, we can see in society that religion does a lot of harm. So that doesn't appear to be valid. And you can live a moral and good and happy and wealthy life without religion. So, um, and then... I was confronted with the same arguments about nationalism. 
nationalism is not true because nations are invented communities based on invented traditions. But I argued maybe it's useful. Maybe it's good to, to imagine that we are a community. Maybe it's good to have a language community that's tightly together in a, a single country where everyone understands each other and chooses a way to live together. Um, but I, I couldn't reconcile those two. I can't make a pragmatic argument uh, for uh, nationalism if I don't accept pragmatic arguments for religion. And what's so the problem it, with the not true, you should believe it. <laughs> okay, so you're saying the truth matters, not just not not whether or not it's just useful or not, right? Yes, exactly. So I couldn't I couldn't make the excuse for nationalism that I didn't accept for uh, religion. So wow, um, that's I did I never seen them put together like that before. This yes. yeah, I I I I absolutely love this, and I think it ties back to one thing that you said sort of in the beginning of the podcast that. Um, stuck with me is uh, that you know you said that you were susceptible to a lot of very compelling arguments even if they weren't true yes and um to me actually that says everything about religion and why that's so successful or why a lot of far-right populism or why you know these things are successful is because storytelling um in an emotionally impactful uh, uh medium like when it's when it's done that way uh, it, it can be extremely compelling. I, I remember going to the Vatican and seeing all of those, the paintings and the sculptures, and, and I felt Catholicism just going into. I was like, "Wow, this is beautiful. This is transcendent." And this is just two years ago. Uh, I'm not a Catholic now, but I, I understood <laughs> the power of it when you use, like, you know, we're talking about music and rock music and how powerful that is, um, and the poetry and everything in religion. I think that the, that the, the art and the storytelling makes it so much more compelling, but often you can even package a bullshit like that and it, but will, it will feel compelling. But, it's a, but let's go, but going back to imagine communities, um, and invented traditions. Yeah. Um, I don't, so what's a real community then? Because isn't every community has differences between its members in there and you just focus on the similarities to build the community rather than the differences? How, like, is every community imagined community? Like, how, what's the difference between imagined community and real communities? Well, it depends on whether we're living in a simulation or not. <laughs> no, go on. Yeah. No, Imagine. well, a, a real community is one where everyone basically knows each other. So in primitive societies, they would anthropologists call this a face-to-face -face society. Or you may have a small village where you know every single person, every single inhabitant. Or okay. you may have an association, for example, uh, well, the Atheist Republic, uh, you, you may know <laughs> all your employees, and, uh, or you may have uh, the British Humanist Association, or right. whatever, you know. I'm going to challenge you on that, because I think, like, the idea, for example, of Ummah, I do think that it's, a, it's actually a very strong community. I mean, the I, I think it's a more... The reason why it's like more um, stronger community than an idea of a nation is because it's a community based on ideas, even though we think it's the wrong ideas, rather than just where you happen to be born in, right? And and I think communities based based on ideas are stronger because I think you have more in common with people that you agree with on certain 
values and ideas more than people that you just happen to be born close to or that you share the same skin color with, right? Um, I yes. mean, if you're a Muslim in Pakistan and you just go to Malaysia, you've never been to Malaysia, and you just show up at the mosque, things start looking familiar, right? And people are going to start saying things that sound familiar to you. And they're going to have values that you understand. And, you know, you just, and it doesn't matter where you go. You just, it just work, you know, and if you're a Shia, you just show up in Iraq, you see people are doing the Ashura, you're like, oh, it's a little bit different here, but I, I get it. I know what they're doing, right? It's just, you just, and you know what it stands for and you know what it's, what they're trying. So I do think, and, and, and I don't see that with nations, right? I just think nations is such a, well, which way of building a community and race also, right? And 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 this is this is my main problem with ethno nationalists or nationalists in general. And and the example that we have very good examples for why ideas and values matter a lot more than race and nationality. And examples like that are if you compare North Korea with South Korea, or if you compare India with Pakistan. Right. I mean, these are people with very close history, with very close uh, ethnicity, with the same geography. The only thing, the main difference between them were the ideas that they adopted and the values that they decided to uh, run their countries by. And you can, I mean, the difference between North Korea and South Korea is night and day. And like, if you look at it from space, it literally is like bright and dark, right? And, it, and I think that, that that shows how baseless it is to unite people based on things other than ideas, right? And, I, and this is why I think Islam and Christianity are so powerful because Christianity would never become such a world major religion unless they took off the barrier of this is for just Jews only. Like that was the moment that it became, no, this is just based on ideas. If you accept these ideas, you're a Christian, right? Yes. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's more powerful and more effective if you build communities and reunite people based on that. I think a black person and a gay white man and, um, and some, I don't do random, just, I'm just going to make stuff up. Some trans Korean (laughs) guy, um, that are all, atheists uh, have more in common uh, with each other than four random white guys. You know what I mean? Uh, because there's, you know, or, or even if they're all Muslim, they have more in common than four random black, uh, black women. Right. Uh, yes. that, you know, so go on. Yes. I, I noticed that as well. Um, especially when I became more involved with the atheist movement and eventually the, the skeptical movement, I often find myself um, identifying more with atheists and skeptics living in other countries than with uh, my neighbors, for example. They may have very different ideas about science and pseudoscience and, and paranormal uh, and, and what have you. So, yes, uh, it... it, it is uh, it, it may it, it may be counterintuitive to uh, identify your community as the nation, and your especially your example about Korea is a, is a striking one. Um, even their languages are drifting apart right now because uh, North Korean 
as barely developed well, while uh, South Korean has, has uh, uh, advanced a lot and has adopted a lot of English loan words, for example. In, in some ways, they can't understand each other anymore. So, and, that's, and that's because they have a very different ideology for decades now. So, yes. Right. Um, uh, but what do you say to people that say that, you know, what's wrong with looking after your own people? Uh, and make and with and looking after the survival of your own race and your or your own nation. What's wrong with that? How would you how would you respond to that? Well, it's not wrong, but it it doesn't have to exclude caring for other people. Um, so one of the slogans I used when I was a nationalist was "own people first, eigen volk eerst," and it basically means that. Uh, you should we should give a preference to uh, native born people when um giving jobs uh when when they're applying for jobs when there's a job opening you should you should let a native person go uh before you you let a, you give a job to an immigrant you know <laughs> Yeah, but then they would say, like, what's wrong with that? This has always been like this. People have always been looking after their own nation, their own race. Um, what, why it's not, is, I know this is, there's a naturalistic policy, but I'm not saying this. Um, say, I'm, I'm not making this argument. I'm saying what they're saying. There, it's natural to look after your own, look after your own tribe. Um, why not? Uh, this is how we are. This uh, you can't deny it. You're just you're denying nature. You're denying reality. You're denying how humans work. <laughs> just the same way that you care about your brother or your daughter more than other people. This is how, you know your race is your extended family, and you take care of them first, and you look after them first, and you try to you care about their survival more than others. So what's wrong with that? How you, how are you respond? Well, well, <laughs> it, it depends on, on the context, really. When, when, when it's about jobs, there's no reason why a qualified immigrant couldn't take a job, uh, instead of, uh, instead of a native person. So, um, and, uh, you know, there, there, and especially when, uh, immigrants uh, or perhaps refugees are a much more dire situation than the native person over here. Um, so did they have to, uh, receive care from us because we, we can, we, uh, can afford some empathy to them. We have, right. we are better off and we can afford some, some help to them where, uh, so they're, they're it's not not always necessary to prioritize the native population. I, right. I also think it's, it's also a bit of a, it's like the flip side of affirmative action because I think a lot of the people, um, like it, oh, I know about the context of Canada, the U.S., but in the U.S., you know, you have a lot of people saying that you know why should we worry about. Uh, the quota thing, you know, that with, there is no woman president, there's no black person in this position, whatever, you know, and said, we should just go with the best person for the job. It shouldn't matter whether they're black yeah, I agree or with American. That. But on the other hand, they also do the America first thing. It was like, we have to give the job to Americans first. Like, well, <laughs> do, choose one. Which one do you, do you want to give it to the best person for the job, which often are highly qualified immigrants who have immigrated here, um, who are often better suited for certain jobs than, than local Americans? Or do you want to give it to, uh, do you want to do the America first thing? So th there's a, there's an interplay and there's a, um, no, it's but, a weird kind of struggle to, to balance those two views, which are contradictory. 
Well, my argument against what I what I just made is that first of all, just because something is our part of our natural urges doesn't mean it's useful. Sometimes, well, yeah, yeah. You, you, we go above that. We look like okay, looking taking care of your own race is actually counterproductive rather than caring about everybody, right? Um, and also, even if you did want to commit the naturalistic fallacy, it shows that. The idea of a tribe doesn't go beyond 150 people. Yeah, right? it, like the idea of you caring about your fellow uh, fellow tribesmen. That tribe is for our brain is designed to be around 150. It never it was never designed to cover an entire fucking country. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also the idea of what what uh, Leon, what you were saying about imagined communities. Like, if the, if you go with that concept that these are imagined communities, you can say, okay, fine. There's a tribe where we're connected by nation, but there's another thing where we're connected by trying to develop and trying to do this job the best that we possibly can. There's another place where we're connected in terms of, um, you know, not necessarily nationalism. Like you said, you agree more with the atheists and the religious and uh, sorry. The skeptic communities overseas than you do with your your own atheistic neighbors. So that is also, I mean, not all of us are confined to one identity. There are multiple identities that all of us carry around all the time. Some of them are inborn yes. that we couldn't help, that were accidents of birth, like race and skin color and all that language. And then there are other ones that we achieved, like we became journalists or we became parents or we became, uh, you know, activists or, or whatever that is. And then you can form communities that are independent of your birth identity and you can get together with certain activists and have another cause. So, so these are... Um, I, I think there are there are differences between these, and, and you can bond on all of them. So, so I wanted to. We, we're coming up to around two hours. We need, we need to get to. We need. We promised our patrons yeah. and live chat people to ask a question, and there's shitload of questions. Okay? Right. That's a, that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to get to. So, uh, you know, we've gone from your journey from when you started out, uh, how you were radicalized, and then how you moved on to different versions of nationalism. Then you gave it up altogether. So, I th I think that's a totally compelling story. One thing before we get to patron questions, I'm going to try to make this as brief as, as you can, um, because I, I don't want to let this go, is that what approaches do you think in terms of de-radicalization, how, how you were de-radicalized? Because I think this is something that could apply across the board to people who are radicalized in a whole range of different sort of extremist ideologies. What, what did you find worked best? If, if we're to engage with people like you were, say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, how... What are the different ways to approach you? Are there multiple approaches that work on different people? Is there a single approach that's universal? What do you find best? I'm going to have to ask you to be brief. I know it's yes. probably a long answer. Yes. Well, it, it's. I think it's. It's uh, the the basic idea is is pretty simple. You have to talk to people politely. You know, uh, otherwise known as don't be a dick. Because uh, when you when you shout at people, name call people, are oh, you fucking Nazi? Uh, um, th that doesn't help. You know that only reinforces their identity. They are offended, and they 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 uh, they, they um, uh, bring up their defenses, and they don't want to listen to you anymore. What you do is you engage uh, in a friendly conversation. So why do you actually have these beliefs? Do you actually hate all foreigners? Why? Uh, oh, which, which which foreigners are okay and which aren't? Why? Um, and what what do do you think uh, we should do about it? Do you think that's reasonable? Do you think that's ethical? Do you think that is in line with human rights? Um, you were an immigrant. Like ask these questions, these Socratic questions. 
uh, don't it, it usually doesn't help to simply condemn some some someone for believing something in a lot of ways they can't help it um they they are kind of victims of of circumstances uh, um your mind it took me seven years to get out of this again um and uh, this is the same for a lot of people who radicalized it took a long time to to recover from their radicalization and um it it only happens if you make them part of your um your your group of friends become friends with with such people ask them questions why do you believe this do you listen for that and what if and put them in a, a different position for example the 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 kinds of people they're opposing what if you were one of them how would you like to be treated by people who think like you is this reasonable yeah and so talk and and try to stay friendly it, it, it it's very hard to do but this is what every skeptic must do every atheist must do to to try and convince another person to change their mind I've always uh, thought that in terms of uh, never be unabashed about your beliefs, about what you think. Like if you're on, if you're writing your book, if you're writing articles, if you're on social media, say what you think. But when you deal with people individually, because a lot of people write to me individually, sometimes they're very angry um, and they're insulting me. I just ignore the insults when I talk one-to-one. I try to be just very, very uh, like, like what you're saying. I've noticed that that combination kind of works, but thank you. Let's get to the uh, patent questions. Armin, is that good? Yeah. yeah I copied else, and pasted all of them and they're, uh, and they're still coming in as well. So yeah. Okay, okay, so so let, let's see what we'll do. I'm going to try to prioritize the ones that, uh, you know, we haven't already discussed because I, I try to do that here, but read, read them anyway, so that, that they know that yeah. we acknowledge their question. And if we, if we answer them, just be like, okay, I think we already answered this one. Then move to the next one. Yeah. Okay? So Han, that's H A N N E S. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I, I hope. Um, so the first question is, and we kind of touched on this. What is a current, general op- opinion um, where you are uh, in the Netherlands on uh, Ayan Hersieli and Theo van Gogh? Ooh. Um, that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, it's hard to generalize about it because it, the, the opinion is divided. Uh, a lot of people, especially um, on what we might call the regressive left, Say that um, they're they're blaming Theo van Gogh as as the victim, like he he had it coming. If you offend Islam that way, no wonder that people respond violently. Fuck. Um, some some people do that on the on the what we might call the regressive left. Other leftists are uh, defending his right to free speech and that you should have every right to uh, criticize any uh, and all ideas, including religion. Um, for a lot of um, uh, right-wing people, especially on the far right, he's he's like a national hero. Like he did, he dared to say what no one dared to say, and yeah, they, they kind of idolizing him. But you know, to be fair, Theo Van Gogh was uh, provoking a lot, and he was offensive and you know you're allowed to be offensive but uh yeah he was was not the most civil person i i have heard that uh, 
but but I, he's I just there. words, people. It's just fucking words. He's oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I was say what I what I heard uh, when I was talking to my publisher. I asked him the same thing, and he said that Ayan Hersi Ali is still very admired uh, among Dutch, even among Dutch liberals. But Theo Van Gogh, like uh, nobody really took him that seriously. They didn't really like him that much. But uh, the nobody, uh, the, the fact that he was killed actually completely changed all that. That made it really. Um, yes, I think it's true. Yeah, yeah, so that wasn't yes. just fun. Anyway, uh, next question. Um, uh, also from Han, he's got a three-part question. As I understand it, nationalism is the idea that a group of people that, roughly speaking, shares a history, culture, and value should have the right to set up a state, etc. Do you think we should work towards updating our ideas of national identity to be more inclusive, or is the idea of nationhood inherently harmful? This is something I think mm. we've already discussed. No, we didn't. So, a lot of people think that we, when we say we're not for nationalism, that means we're, idea, we're against the idea of a nation. Of course we're not. That's, that's, how could you run... like? You need, of course, you, the way to govern different geographies is for different places to have their own government and you elect them and you have uh, of, uh, officials to represent people. Just, you know, when, we, when we're saying like nas nationalism doesn't mean that we're against nation or nationhood uh, or nation state. We're saying that just assuming that you deserve something more or you're superior in some way because you happen to be born within certain borders, that's a ridiculous viewpoint. But I, yeah, I think we did kind of touch on that. But, but, but Leon, no, do you no, think nationhood itself is harmful inherently? No. I am not sure. And I, I really struggle with this. Yeah. Um, we, How else? We, actually, Armin and I talked about this uh, because we would like to overcome uh, ethnic and national uh, pride in a sense um, but both of us do favor an independent Kurdish state which seems kind of well, contradictory um, okay no okay so I didn't I didn't <laughs> say that I said I have to clarify what I'm talking about okay I the 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 reason why I like that Kur the Kurdish area is not because they're Kurds but because mm -hmm. there seems to be the values and they seem to like the, the ideas they have there. And it, it doesn't matter if they're court or not. That area of people, whoever is there, their values seem to be more liberal. They seem to be more for progress. They seem to, uh, not all of them again, right? And it, it has, I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that they're courts. I think it's just um, uh, the, the historical, um, it was a historical accident. But those, the values that the people around there are adopting are values that I think needs to be supported. Even if they were not Kurds, um, I think those people over there need, deserve some support, right? As, as, okay. as I'm not supporting them because they are Kurds, right? No, no. Right. Nor do I. But right. does this justify them forming their own independent state? See, I am not sure. Right. So, and again, I, I don't see states and countries as anything but lines that you draw on the ground that is important because you basically, you make policies based on these lines. I just don't think there's anything magical or spiritual or special about the fact that you're now on this side of the land and line or on the other side of the line. I just think these decisions should be made, be, be made based on policies or who which people want who to represent them rather than like oh these are my people this is our culture this is our history and all that like 
uh, you know, st- stuff like that, right? It should be ma- based, be made based on policy. I do think these lines matter. Democratic nationalism, where people basically, uh, uh, nationhood, not nationalism, no. but just where people actually choose those things based on what they want for themselves rather than uh, this is what we stand for and everybody must comply with it or else right i don't think yeah. like these lines mean anything like spiritual or like it makes anything it says anything special about you because you're on this side of the line i do still think these lines matter because we're deciding who represents you uh, who who you're electing as your official for you to represent make decisions for your people because you're on this side of the line right mm-hmm. yeah right well, i i think though that in general it is useful to have a single language for a country, a, co- a language that everyone in the country understands, and that's all media. That's not going to go away very soon. We're going to have like int- AI that is going to like just translate everything <laughs> in real time. Language is going to be irrelevant. So. Well, and, you know, living in a simulation Maybe. and all yeah. that. <laughs> but um, I'm going uh, to, yeah, sorry, I'm going to rush. Yeah, sorry, go, go to question. We have go. Uh, a little bit of time left. So uh, the third part of his question In Europe, I see a widening rift between what the general population wants in regards to immigration policy and what the political establishment deliver. A worrying opinion poll found in France and Germany, for example, the majority of the population don't want any more migrants from Muslim countries. Do you think this rift is at least partially to blame for the rising popularity of far-right and populist groups? Uh, okay, this is a difficult question. First of all, the one I, the word I want to pick up on is Muslim countries. There's no such thing. Uh, there are Muslim majority countries, but there's no country that's 100% Muslim. Um, uh, another thing is maybe we are um, reversing cause and effect here. I think there are other causes for why there is a rising tide of um, anti-immigration sentiment in Europe. And that is basically because of... Um, several uh, terrorist attacks that have happened in recent years. Many were carried out uh, by Islamic State or other jihadist groups. I think that is the main reason why people specifically want to ban Muslims from immigrating to Europe. Um, that the fact that this, this is not the... Um, uh, the, the, op- the general opinion of the establishment is not a reason why even more people are thinking in anti-immigrant manners. Um, that, that's just the, I don't know how else to phrase it. I think they're, they're, they're uh, switching cause and effect here. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't, don't, don't also, also don't really know a way to address it, uh, other than, uh, an, an unflinching, uh, defense of secularism. We need a a very firm separation of church and state and also to separate national identity from religious identity. That's also very important. Like it's, it's, it's very important for immigrants to be accepted as a part of our community, despite having a different religious identity or or beliefs, whatever. Um, Europe should become a secular melting pot in the way that the United States have, um, with a firm separation of church and state. And other than that, you can become an American with your own uh, cultural identity if you want. You know, uh, we we 
could be a, con- a continent of immigrants, a country of immigrants. Um, uh, as long as church uh, or as long as religion and state are firmly separated, I don't think there needs to be a clash yeah, between a model immigration and, uh, and, and the local cultures and customs. Yeah. And there's a model in the U.S. that's actually worked pretty well, and you're in Canada yeah. too. So next one, I'm going to try to do at least uh, one one question from each one of them because some of them sent many part questions. So from Matt, who do neo? This is a quick one. Who do neo Nazis hate the most these days? Jews, blacks, gays, Muslims, or just all non Nazis equally? <laughs> um, depends on the Nazi, I guess. I think actually that the per- people they most hate are the left fellow countrymen. Oh, <laughs> when, okay. you, when you look at... at, at uh, they shouldn't at hate them. They're responsible Like, he attacked the native white Norwegian leftists hmm. because they were betraying their country to the Muslim immigrants. Who? Breivik, um, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> that's I, it. I, I, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I think a lot of these groups define themselves based on who they're against. And I think this is why the regressive leftist is responsible for the rise of these groups is because they, they are the enemy that they are uh, rallying people behind, right? I, I think I think they're responsible for their own actions, but the regressive left absolutely facilitates. Ali, when you say when you when you analyze the what's responsible for the rise of an idea, that that's not taking the agency away from people deciding. Okay, then, then we agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I I do think that they I I think they it, it was more of a facilitation. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, the next question. This is a very popular. This is when I was there. I got this from every interviewer asked me about. Uh, Gert Wilders. I, I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. pronouncing it right. I'm probably screwing it up. But uh, yeah, what is opinion, your opinion about Gert Wilders? Wilders, for those of you who don't know, is a Dutch politician, is very critical of Islam. So there is some merit in his critique, or is it nothing more than just anti-Muslim bigotry? Well, this is a good question, and I knew it would come up. <laughs> yeah. So, by some he is regarded as the successor of Pim Fortuyn, um, but he's, he's kind of different. Um before I got the right to vote, I was a, I was a, I was sympathized with Geert Wilders, um, but uh, I saw that his criticism of Islam was hypocritical and selective, because you know he didn't criticize Christianity or Judaism, which I also thought were bullshit. So he is defending uh, what he says is he's defending is the Judeo-Christian humanist tradition which is a word nobody had ever heard before <laughs> but uh, but he is, he is selective he is he is are there are parts where he is right and uh, he for example there was a recent um propaganda film right before the local elections where he said a lot of islam is and then a lot of things that uh, are going wrong in islam like it's it's um, it's misogynistic. It's homophobic. Um, a lot of a lot of criticisms you can level at other religions, uh, but some are we're we're more specific to Islam. For example, uh, jihad or uh, the death penalty for apostates. That's very specific to Islam. You don't have that in other religions, or at least it's not enforced. It may be in you know the Old Testament, but 
there's virtually no no ex-Christians or ex-Jews being killed because they left the religion. Um, and actually, I thought, thought that was the strongest part of this video. Um, uh, that That is because um, if you focus on the apostates, that means you understand that you can leave a religion theoretically at least and are practical also because you're both ex-muslims i'm talking to one uh, two two of the two of perhaps the most famous muslims in the world at the moment so yeah. um you can leave the religion um and i thought that was very good of them to mention unfortunately they paint it all as monolith and oh many i always try to make distinction between Islam, religion, and Muslims, the people. Uh, but many nationalists don't do that. They they conflate that. So, um, um, so this this video was. Uh, and just just a quick point also that yes. uh, it's okay to focus on Islam or it's okay to focus on Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism. It's okay to focus on your religion of choice to criticize. Yes. But when you make excuses for those other religions. That's, that's when is, yeah. that's when the problem is. Yeah, yeah. I I used to what I did was uh, the just quickly the way that I used to answer this question is that I would tell uh, the interviewers I'd say that what Garrett Wilders many of his exactly what you said many of his criticisms of Islam are correct they're on the mark the same criticisms yes. that I have uh, but his uh, solution his prescription for the solution. You know, that's a problem because all of these, you know, yes. sort of terrorists hiding in caves and everything, they're, they're not going to bring down Western civilization. But what they can yes. do is they can make Western civilization. So, I mean, they know they can't bring down Western civilization, but they can make it so paranoid with fear, right? That, that we start saying, okay, we're going to compromise free speech. Let's cut our civil liberties here or there. Let's yeah. change our that's human rights thing. laws. This is exactly what Teresa May said in a tweet. Let's change our human rights laws so that, you know, we can be more secure. But but also they are the fastest growing religion in the world, Ellie. So that it is a it is a world. Problem. The fastest growing religion in the world is the nuns, not the Catholic nuns. <laughs> yeah, but there. But I do think that there's three major ideologies that are growing. One is um, atheism and secularism. The other one is um, you know uh, ethno nationalism. And the last one is Islam. No, no, that's, that's right. But the way that what I'm saying is that that's fine. They can be the biggest, fastest growing thing in the world. But the way that they're going to take over the West isn't going to be through their bombs and terrorists, their cars into crowds. The way they're going to take over is mm -hmm. if they cause us to compromise on our values of free speech of individual but, but liberty. But also, also smaller things, not just bombs and like, you know, just thinking, you know, uh, um, you know, that you can criticize. I, I do think that well, that's the free speech aspect, right? Free speech but, aspect, or even just believing that uh, women uh, should, you know, should cover themselves, or they deserve less rights, or they should be silent, or uh, homosexuality is wrong, or yeah. you know, all of these ideas are are spreading, and um, I, I, you know, I I don't think the cost of Islam is just. You know, suicide bombs or or that Shia versus Sunni um, views yep. or Sunni versus Shia views. These are these are and and it's not just about the West. Islam is growing uh, as an ideology and it's a plague and it is. It, it, I mean, 
where people think when we're talking about Islam as a threat, we're, talk, we're talking about West, saving Western countries from Islam. Islam is becoming a more of a problem in Malaysia, in Indonesia. Yeah, within the Turkey. Muslim, I agree with you. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, but I'm just saying, don't, let's, let's not think like the rise of the influence of Islam rising. It's not something to be scared about. And I'm scared. Oh, no, I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that yeah. at all. Right. right. Is that the way that they're going to get to us? The rise of this, the way that it's going. But when you say us, you're as you're talking as if we're ta- we're the West, and that's Islam. And I don't like to see it as West versus Islam. I think it's a, it's a it's the planet versus Islam. Yeah, no, I'm I'm saying for the sake of from the point of view of somebody like Garrett Wilders, right? Like when he says that uh, are there, it's a threat to Western civilization. The only time it would be the way that it's going to be a threat to Western civilization is that if it gets us to okay. compromise our own values on the left and the right, like the, absolutely, like the left does. Right. Have I just don't, I just don't identify as when you say us. I just don't see my uh, identify as being part of the that us that people consider westerners yeah i mean i consider that at all to be universal values right right yeah. okay, okay so next your next question interested if you have read ian bruma's book uh, murder in amsterdam this is from matt another matt uh murder in amsterdam and if you agree with the characterization of the events have you read no, it sorry i've never heard of this book Okay, then let's move on. <laughs> okay, so from Free Kekistan, I've heard a lot about this Kekistan thing, but uh, okay. so I, I'm going to have to Google it. Is it the strength of nationalism precisely that it allows... You don't know people, about the Kekistani people? I, it's a, I know it's a big internet phenomenon. I haven't paid that much attention. I'll, I'll figure that out. <laughs> so he's saying, uh, isn't the strength of uh, nationalism precisely that it allows people uh, of very different backgrounds and ideas to share a core identity and a general culture and rules? And we've sort of touched on this, I think, already, but... Well, I don't think it's an idea. How, how is it could be... How could it be an identity if they share nothing in common? I think the good thing about a nation is that it could be welcoming to anybody that they that they think is a value to their nation. But nationalism, again, we have to be careful what we mean by nationalism, right? Um, if your if your idea of nationalism is that I'm in favor of having a nation, well, okay, fine. But it, it, nationalism, in the meaning, in the sense that um, you know we we are better or we deserve more. That's toxic, and I don't think it makes sense to build an idea. And in fact, if you build an I- identity around that, you're bec- you're going to become less welcoming. Why yeah. do you even need an identity around that? Just be a nation. Yeah, yeah. build an identity around something you've worked for, not something that you were given as yes. a, as at birth. You know, like right. build something. Become. You know, I've noticed here in Canada, you know, where the, the people born Palestinian, people born Israeli, people born Arab, born Jews. Over there, they're fighting each other like crazy. When right. they come here, you go to a, a, a place. Like a, I went to a, a news organization, right? I was a long time ago, and there were Palestinian people, there were Israeli people, and they're joking with each other because they had a shared identity of being journalists. Right. You know, and that's something that they achieve through work rather than the, the right, right. I mean, yeah, time. it's a, this, I, you know, that's just a, this be a identity nation, thing. Just be a it's nation. Just, but like when you, when you, when you're thinking about yourself, right? Yeah. Like 
do you think of yourself as like what a, a father, a doctor, a teacher, um, a journalist, as Ali said, and an atheist, a Muslim, even a Christian? These make sense, even though I we disagree with them. It makes sense because you chose an idea. You you decided that this is what I believe in, right? But stuff that you just like, oh my skin color, well, like my nose it's shape to take of my nose. Why yeah. nothing to take pride in or even build an identity on? Like because yeah, you, there's nothing that unites you with the next person that you have the same shape of nose with. Like or you just happen to be close. Like okay, if if I if being born in the same nation makes me have the same identity, if they if does that mean I even closer to my neighbors because we're even closer than people yeah, in the yeah, next I province? Know, so. I mean, there's nothing there that connects us with each other or makes us feel like we belong to certain yeah yeah but go on sorry so a comment from sorry we have about five more minutes afterwards like i have a bit of a hard stop sorry okay Okay, (laughs) it'll be up to two and a half hours so anyway uh we've got uh just a comment from lois lois is saying that this is fascinating i'm analyzing my own thinking or not thinking when i was young i'm developing exciting new ideas thanks thank you Lois. Thank you, thank you, Lois, <laughs> and thank you, Leon, for for actually doing yeah. that. That's a that's a really really huge compliment. Um, You're welcome. So we have. I'm going to try to get to some of the other questions as well. From RMC four twelve, whoever that is. Do you know Christian Picciolini or Picciolini? No, never heard of him. <laughs> I think he's a. Uh, he was on the Sam Harris podcast. He was a, also a, a former sort of far right nationalist who had a uh, an awakening but mm. anyway so we'll we'll move on uh from kswim4228 would you agree that compassion is a first step for convincing anyone in an extreme ideology to change your mind and yes you already touched yes. that as well you said yeah. that compassion empathy yes. don't be a dick don't be a dick <laughs> really yeah <laughs> I wouldn't go beyond saying compassion be, be, uh, even is more important beyond uh, more than logic because a lot of people are not very smart and that's okay. And I think that compassion is something that you can reach more people with than, than logic. But I go, agree. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the next uh, question, nations uh, from disidentity. Nations can be defined somewhat arbitrarily, but they have immense utility as well. How does a recovering white nationalist define a nation or nation state? I think we agree that nations are have utility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's, he's saying, how does he... Uh, and we talked about your definition. So you, you, I think he's asking you, how do you define a nation or a nation state? Yeah. Well, this is uh, basically a state where um, people either have uh, a form of ethnic uh, national identity or voluntarist national identity that they basically all agree on. And that nobody, there is, there's no big group within society that is not included in that. Um, so for me, language was very important. It doesn't have to be language. Religion can be very important. Certain cultural customs. Oh, I think he's asking you as a recovering white national. And he's not asking about your yes. idea before now. But he's talking about what do you think now? How would you define a nation or nation state now? That's oh, very difficult. Or is that what you were saying? It, on, on the country we're talking about, like um, for for Iceland, for example, everyone there speaks Icelandic. Their language is very important to them. But uh, it, it, you know, 
there is no such thing as a single language, for example, for India. Uh, they are not united by a common language. For them, for example, Hinduism or uh, their, their, their history is more important or their geography is more important than uh, having a single language. Um, so it's, it's, it, it isn't our, our uh, a nation state is where people all shared sort of the same identity mm. um, and there's no major uh, separatist movements within that country that want to become an independent state. Actually, related uh, to this same person from disidentity, and this is, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, they're also saying, can we distinguish civic no, nationalism? Yeah, no, no, I want to get back to that before, after we answer this question, okay? Because I have an answer. Well, I actually thought that. it was related to this. I no, think. no, this is separate because... Um, I do think that I don't think as as a person that doesn't believe in ethnostates or nationalism um, as in the way that we are against. I know there's different definitions for nationalism, okay? But I think what a nation is is just a it's just a social contract. It's just an agreement that people have with each other that here he we decide here's we're gonna draw a line here. That does just because it's an agreement doesn't mean it's not useful. Okay, yes, we made it up, but it's a useful thing to make up. We're gonna draw a line here. That means that people here represent us. We're gonna elect us, and you guys decide that. And the, the difference between um, other forms of uh, nationalism and people that actually believe that the, in the utility of nation state is that we think these lines should be j drawn based on pragmatic and the utility of. Um, of the politics behind drawing these lines, like not based on like, oh, this is my identity, this is my culture, this is my history. Like, no, I, f I think if we draw this line here, because there's oils of oil over here, there's some water over here. We want access to the fish here. You guys have the forest over there. I think let's come up with an agreement. I think if we draw a line here, it's going to be work out for everyone. Like you could negotiate, you could fight back and forth, civil like civil dis disagreements, and come up with an agreement. Okay, let's draw a line here, right? And I think. It's just a social. Uh, it's, a, it's just a social uh, contract that you people uh, make with each other, and it's more useful if it's not based on this r sense of superiority or history or identity or culture, and if it's just yes. based on as economic uh, utility and geographic and political utility, and if it's based on that, these lines will become more useful where we draw them. Yes. Um, so what Armin is describing here is um, a, a different form of nationalism, which is more French or Western European. It's called uh, sometimes voluntary nationalism, or you can also call it patriotism or perhaps republicanism in the original sense of the word, a non-American sense of republicanism, that you together form a nation, you have people's sovereignty, popular sovereignty, and you together uh, need to form a government and and uh, uh, decide together uh, without a monarch from above or some other uh, power figure um, to decide for, together what's best, what is in the best interest for for all of you. Right, and that doesn't have so much to do with these objective factors such as uh, uh, skin color, or whatever. So right. that that's a different form of nationalism that I moved later on to so yeah right. do, you, do you accept I, that now or do you reject that as well or um i wouldn't call it nationalism i i, I might say that i'm a yeah, patriot I. I 
Yeah. I call myself a Republican, but not in the American sense of the word. In, in the <laughs> right. None of us do. No, yeah. right. <laughs> a Republican with a small R rather than a yeah, With a small R, yes. Right, right, right. Because uh, I, I don't favor the monarchy. We, we still have a king. <laughs> and uh, in yeah. Canada, you have uh, still have a queen. Uh, I'm a Republican. I think I think we should have a, a All president. Right, that, last question. <laughs> last one. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, this is so. Is, I I think we were already going towards this. No, but this is different. Yeah. Oh, this is. Oh, okay. So I'm be. I'm, this is gonna be interesting. Then. Um, can we please distinguish civic nationalism from chauvinism and racism and ethnic nationalism? I think we basically just done that. Like civic nationalism, patriotism, republicanism, or voluntary nationalism. That's that's all in the same corner. And uh, racism and, and ethnic nationalism is in the other corner. This is more than we no. But he's saying. But the, I think what he or she is suggesting is that uh, civic nationalism is different from the nationalism you guys are talking about. And my response is that the fact that you have to qualify that with the civic shows that a lot of the nationalism. That we're talking that when we talk about nationalism, it does cover the kind of nationalism that we're against, right? Yeah. So yes, I understand that some of the things that we agree on, some people label it as nationalism as well. I try not to use label it as like just like you, you don't call it nationalism either, right? And if people want, if people if people mean civic nationalism, then okay, we we might be on the same page with those people. Uh, yeah, that, that's yeah. a semantic. Okay, so I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, yeah. I, so this Semantics matter, though, so because yeah, to, for, for us to yes. be on the same page, yeah. Right, like because you know, like the earlier question, they were talking about a nation or nation-state. So nation-state, you know, you can say, well, this is a nation-state would be borders based on resources, for instance. But historically, the connotation of nation-states in Europe has always been about the language and culture and the core identity and the stuff that we're talking about rejecting. Right. So there is uh, when you use these terms, sometimes they do have, like, you know, when you said Republican, there's a different connotation. In the U.S. is a different connotation elsewhere. So it's important to clear up. these so, semantics. So yeah, there are form of nationalism. I guess the answer to this is yes, there are definitions of nationalism that we agree with. But generally, when people mean are talking about nationalism is the is the, is the kind that we disagree with. And also, I don't know when this identity joined the live chat. He says, that, do you, are you guys going to distinguish between racism and ethnic nationalism? We do. Um, ethnic nationalism is not racism, but we still disagree with ethnic nationalism, even though if, even if it's not racism. Right. And then we talked about that earlier in the podcast as well. Right. Yes. So, um, uh, Leon, where can this is? Uh, this has been this an amazing two hours. I wish I could stay for longer, but uh, where can people find you if people are more interested in reaching out to you, asking you questions, uh, social media, email, or website, anything? YouTube channel. Well, that's the thing. I don't have a I have my own website really, but uh, I'm 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 contactable or followable on um or on on Twitter. Uh, I actually do a lot of Wikipedia as well. I didn't even get into that. Um, yeah. I write a lot about uh, um, Muslims at the moment and uh, science, human rights. Um, and in that project, um, I'm involved with guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia. And uh, besides that, I'm a board member of uh, the Dutch Freethinkers Association, De Vrije Gedachten. So you can contact me there. And I'm also uh, an associate board member of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, or EXO. So you can find me on exo.org. And I'm uh, not really active on Twitter, but you can find me at Leon Quartz. Yeah. 
Um, we're going to put all those links uh, under this, <laughs> uh, under this. So yeah, so people who want to know, and yes, you are a Wikipedia, and you've actually written a lot of uh, Wikipedia articles, like especially including the page for me, right. uh, the page for uh, a lot of other ex-Muslim activists. You didn't so ask Mike's question. Pocky bashing, just really quickly. Mike is asking, what about pocky bashing? Was it answered? Or not? I lost the connection. A few minutes. I, Did, what, was what it? Was it, was it a pocky bashing? I just want to make sure Mike Mike is Paki bashing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Paki is a basically a derogatory word for South Asian. Was that something common among your group? Mm, no. No. We don't have a lot of Pakistani people in the Netherlands. Okay. <laughs> Pakistani. All right. Just, okay. So yeah, actually you did a lot of uh, Wikipedia articles on ex focusing on ex-Muslims a lot, right? Yeah. Is there is there a reason yes. why ex-Muslims is a is something that you're interested in as a as a group of people? Yes, because I think you are one of the best people. You 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 tend to know the best about how Islam works from the from the inside and showing that you can actually leave Islam is very important in changing. Uh, the way these uh, discussions are had and you can also encourage other people to leave Islam and this is much better and I think it's actually the only le legitimate response if we want to overcome Islam you don't banning people from countries or uh, trying to exterminate them which is not even possible but yeah. you, you change their minds that's the way it's done and that's the way Christianity is, is dying so that's right. this apostasy is the best solution to right. the the problems associated with religion. Now, even if we can get an enlightened Islam, that would be wonderful. But I'm more in favor of of, of complete apostasy. Oh, and you, we we should that right by that. by example. So <laughs> yeah, and and for people that think that's not possible, they don't they don't know their history because religions yeah. die all the time. They do all the time. I mean, and, and the other thing is, I, I think that I, and I really appreciate that, Leon, because I think ex-Muslims actually do have uh, the, the right discourse because we, we're, we're, we've challenged the ideas and we've rejected the ideas, but we also know that none of us, well, at least I wouldn't be here if, it, if people were going around banning all people from Muslim countries. You know, I know yeah. Armin wouldn't be here either. So, so that kind of balance is something that we're familiar with. So we have a perspective, I think, that a lot of people can, can find very useful in that way. And yes, so I, I what, appreciate what, all your work. Thanks. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. No, uh, you want to say something? Add, add one thing uh, from uh, Muhammad Sayed from yeah. uh, uh, Ex-Muslims of North America. He right. says that... Um, Exactly when uh, the the millions of Muslims living in the Western world get the chance to openly discuss Islam and challenge Islam and criticize uh, ideas uh, is in Islamic theology, this can bring about the Muslim Enlightenment. It cannot happen in Muslim majority countries where this sort of discourse is right. often uh, strictly limited and even repressed. Mm. So. Um, Without Muslim immigration, we cannot reform Islam, actually, is his, his basic argument. So exactly. this is the way it's done. Yeah, exactly. And as ex-Muslims have a safe haven in the West, and yeah. always be able to try that. Yeah, I know. When I was writing my book, I got people from all over the Muslim world writing to me saying, uh, can you make sure you say this? We can't say this here. Can you make sure you put this right. in the book? Can you make sure you put this in? And we have this. I mean, that's why we have this podcast. That's why this is so important to us. 
Right. And, and, and really appreciate your support. And, and again, as somebody that is not an ex-Muslim and is not, uh, you, you, you is, I, I do assume that you might get a lot of shit for talking about things that people think that you have no right talking about. Right. Yes. But we do need support from people like you and, um, and you have done so much for the ex-Muslim movement. And I'm very thankful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Welcome. It's an honor. <laughs> yeah, Leon, I love this. This was so much fun. Um, yeah, it was. It was. I love it too. It great. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was very I, nice. I hope you're less nervous now. Are you still still nervous? <laughs> no, no, I'm completely chill right now. <laughs> <laughs> You've been de-radicalized. Yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so, yes. Okay, thank you guys in live chat, Mike. Thank you. This identity, Matt. Um, Free kick, free kick, Stan, RMC four one two, Luis. Um, you're all awesome. Great questions, and thank you to all our patrons for making this possible. Yeah, thanks. The secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadist.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.